This episode is brought to you by Thorn, and I have some incredible news for any of you that are in the military, first responder, or medical professions. In an effort to give back, Thorn is now offering you an ongoing 35% off each and every one of your purchases of their incredible nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is the official supplement of CrossFit, the UFC, the Mayo Clinic, the Human Performance Project, and multiple special operations organizations. I myself have used them for several years, and that is why I brought them on as a sponsor. Some of my favorite products they have are their Multivitamin Elite, their Whey Protein, the Super EPA, and then most recently, Cinequil. As a firefighter, a stuntman, and a martial artist, I've had my share of brain trauma and sleep deprivation, and Cinequil is their latest brain health supplement. Now, to qualify for the 35% off, Go to thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Click on sign in and then create a new account. You will see the opportunity to register as a first responder or member of military. When you click on that, it will take you through verification with GovX. You'll simply choose a profession, provide one piece of documentation, and then you are verified for life. From that point onwards, you will continue to receive 35% off through Thorn. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, for a one-time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Kevin Basic. Now, Kevin spent his entire military career with the U.S. Air Force, ultimately teaching leadership within that organization. He recently transitioned in a new position as the Chief of Leadership Programs for the National Medal of Honor Institute within the National Medal of Honor Museum. So we discuss a host of topics from his own journey into the military, the ROTC program, character, behavioral integrity, leading through the storms, some incredibly powerful stories of Medal of Honor recipients, and so much more. Now, before we get to this amazing conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment and go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Kevin Basic. Enjoy. Yeah, so uh, born in Chicago, but my family moved down to Southwest Florida when I was about two years old. So that was always home for me. And I'm the youngest of six kids. One girl who stands about a towering five foot two, and then five boys, um, all of whom basically are big, meaty, corn fed, muscle dragging, you know, knuckle dragging mouth breathers. So, you know, that's how I describe it because they're all the big, strong football player types. And I showed up as the runt of the litter. So I was the baby of, of the six. 
And, uh, but I grew up in a, a very loving household and very active. I grew up watching my, my siblings, older siblings play sports and, and just uh, be members of the community. So the tribe I grew up in, in the family, it was, it was supportive and healthy and loving and um, a very, very blessed. But my oldest brother, when I was about 12 years old, was recruited for football in a couple of different places. But the one that kind of captured his attention was this place called the Air Force Academy. And we knew nothing about the military, nothing. Because my dad, my dad was a developer. He was a builder. He built, um, he built houses. He built every house we lived in. But he was also um, just a visionary developer in South Florida and created all sorts of projects and, and things that endure today. But my brother gets this invitation to uh, the Air Force Academy through the prep school. And off he goes. And the first time he came back, there was something different going on. So that was our first introduction to what's, you know, he looks different. He's carrying himself differently. This uniform thing just caught our attention. So much so that my next older brother uh, was recruited, went through the prep school as well, but he was recruited for football and went to the Air Force Academy. Uh, my next oldest brother went to normal people college uh, in Georgia, but he went our Army ROTC and and got introduced. We got introduced to that whole thing, the Army thing. My next brother went to West Point. Uh, he was recruited that way. So here I am now. It's time for me to enter that phase of my life. So I'd been introduced to the service academy thing, and I knew I wasn't going to fly. Um, I wasn't recruited for athletics, um, but I was able to after quite a bit of of a number of attempts actually to get in the Air Force Academy. And that introduced me to sort of the leadership domain. I was a, I was a behavioral science student, a human factors engineering student at the Air Force Academy. And I bought into the leadership thing and the human domain arena. And that caught my heart. So as I graduated from the Academy, uh, went out and the Air Force about a year, year and a half later called me up and said, Hey, we'd love to have you come back and teach because um this seems to resonate with you. So we'll send you to grad school if you come back to be the faculty. So that's their pipeline program. And that got me on the professional journey of, of leadership development. I got a master's degree in industrial and organizational psychology. So what is that? That's what do we know about what's happening in the, in the funky human animal up you know above the head and then put that person into context. So my focus was small team leadership. Why does it work? Why does it not work? What's happening? What are the dynamics that matter? Um, so I went back in the Air Force and got a chance to apply that and explore that and and uh, just dive into the mission. Uh, went and taught at the Citadel for a couple of years, uh, running the Air Force ROTC program, the leadership program there. I taught leadership uh, at that school, which is a it's a civilian school, but it's a, a military a service school. So it still had that environment. And then I got called up to kind of the headquarters to the show to run leadership development nationally for uh, for the Air Force. For, so any college or university that had an Air Force ROTC program, I was in charge of the leadership development component and the summer programs and whatnot. And eventually they said, hey, we, we need you to go a little deeper. So they sent me to get a PhD. And the joke in our family is, Anytime I think the PhD is at all impressive, my mom will introduce me as, this is my son, Kevin. He's a doctor, but not the kind that helps anybody. 
Right. So that's, that's, my, that's my, um, but I got a, so I got, I got a master's degree at Florida state and they through the college of business in organizational behavior, which is a lot of the psychology stuff all over again, but now it's kind of up a, a level. The muscle movements are a little bit bigger. Now we're going to talk about trust. We're going to talk about culture. We're going to talk about sort of the the identity of the people in the organization and what does leadership do to model that and to develop that. And my area of focus, and I know we'll get into this, is something called behavioral integrity. And that just became the goggles through which I see the world. And uh, I brought that mindset with me to the, back to the Air Force Academy to help run some of the, the Center for Character and Leadership Development. And at, at the Air Force Academy, we say we develop leaders of character. And the task fell to me to say, what do we mean by that? We've been saying it a long time. We never defined it. And how do you actually develop somebody toward that? And what's it can't just be, well, that's how it was done to me. So it must have worked out. It must be good because look at me. You know, it can't be that. It's got to be what's the rigor, what's the science behind it and all. So uh, we developed a framework for developing a leader of character in a culture that 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 strengthens that. And through all that work, we did some cool things. And my name bubbled up, apparently. And I got pulled up to the Pentagon to help focus on values-based leadership at the Department of Defense level. So across all the branches of the service is what do we do to strengthen people's identity in the profession of arms? You know, their, their commitment. We don't, we don't want compliance-based leadership. We want commitment-based leadership. So how do we fan the flames of that? So based on my background, I got invited to help out with that. Um, and then uh, as I retired, I love this stuff, James. I, I drink the Kool-Aid. I mix the Kool-Aid. I serve the Kool-Aid. You can't convince me that some of the things that just keep bubbling up to the top don't matter. And in organizations, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a, it's a group of firefighters, whether it's a police force, whether it's military or corporate or sales team or a family, if things are breaking down, usually you can connect the dots back to the fundamentals. There's certain things that you got to get right. You got to make sure you're watering that corner of the garden or else it's going to, you're going to have problems. So as I got out of the military, I said, I love this. And I want to just keep doing it. So I, I started my own company and I was blessed enough to have enough military folks who said, we want you to keep coming and talking to us. And I got corporate things and all that going on. And then about a year and a half ago, uh, through a, just a, a classmate and mutual friend, amazing leader in her own right, uh, she introduced me to a group of folks that were doing something amazing. And it's the National Medal of Honor museum foundation but basically in this meeting i got invited to they said hey there's three things we're trying to do we're going to do actually first is we're going to get the national medal of honor monument built on the mall in washington dc which is not an easy lift but they pulled they pulled it off and now it's just down to site selection but that that national monument's going on the mall in dc probably close to abraham lincoln off his left foot the second piece of the puzzle is we're going to build the National Medal of Honor Museum, which is uh, this iconic, amazing structure designed around the values embodied in the Medal of Honor. And the third piece of the puzzle they said in this meeting is within that museum, we're going to have the National Medal of Honor Leadership Institute. And we'd love help sort of figuring out what that needs to look like. 
what the structure should be, what the the spirit should be, how we start that. We need we need structure and we need some momentum. We think you might be the guy to help us do that. So for a year and a half, I've been kind of helping on that mission to uh, to bring the Medal of Honor values to the world and say these things matter. And we're back to leaders of character again. And uh, you know the values, uh, courage integrity, sacrifice, commitment, you know, service to something bigger than yourself, that never stops being important. And wrapped in that, of course, is citizenship and patriotism and some of these other virtues. So, so there you go. So from a little kid on an island in Southwest Florida, um, I have the blessing now of, of sharing just concepts about living and leading with character and honor uh, to the world. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to take you back to Florida because uh, okay, I like to unpack good. early I'm, life I'm right <laughs> a little that. bit. Um, so a couple of things. Firstly, you mentioned that your sister was one of six, you know, the only yes. only girl. Yes. What impact did that have on the person she became when everyone around her was, you know, burly corn fed boys? And, yeah. What and a yourself. great, <laughs> what a great question because she is she is such a special woman and is just. She's a force of nature in her just gentle, loving spirit. And she she had to tolerate a house full of guys, you know? And now I was the baby, so I showed up after everybody. So I got a different chapter in the whole story. But as I was growing up, as much as, you know, everybody sort of dogged each other and and all, everybody respected my sister. You know, my sister, she you, you loved Lori. Um, and she's just, again, she's not a towering figure, but she is, uh, she is strong and significant just in her presence, in her faith, um, in her, her dedication. So she, I don't know if because she grew up there, um, with a bunch of guys, she, I, th- I think things roll off her shoulders just differently. Um, she can just shake her head and go, Oh, those guys. The, you know, knuckleheads. I think she can keep things in perspective because she's just seen goofball, you know, brothers in mass that do, you know, it's like that ball of just, just chaos and energy. Um, and she were, she remained separate and in control when all that stuff was going on. But she's, she's, I think she is strong because of her primary position in the family. She was respected. Beautiful. I'm one of five kids. And funny enough, my eldest sister, she used to, we grew up on a farm. So she used to muck out stables and all that kind of thing. She actually could beat, I think, all the boys in her school year at arm wrestling. So I remember she had these like onions on her, on her, on her arms. Yeah. It was amazing. But my youngest one, she was really the one that grew up around, you know, three boys by that point. One was a twin and two older ones. And she was always the, the tough one you know she she i think again her her spirit and her her uh ability to just not be intimidated by people it was interesting watching the two dynamics she, my older sister was born before any of us and then my youngest one obviously was one of the last ones born but strong for different reasons yeah and i think the strength shows up differently i would say she my, my sister is definitely strong but wasn't arm wrestling strong. I think I can take that one off the table right there. But uh, but just strong, you know, strong in her her personal stand. Um, and she and my dad, I think, had a very unique relationship. I'm I'm 11 years removed from her, 
And my relationship with my dad, you know, he was in business and he was he was off and running with things as I was growing up. And, uh, you know, when the sixth kid shows up, it's just like, all right, well, good luck with that. You know, the, the, <laughs> the rest of the kids will probably take care of you and hopefully you don't kill yourself. So I think her relationship with my dad um, gave her strength and wisdom. I would say there's probably a lot of wisdom in her role in our family, too. Now, speaking of your dad for a second, Florida obviously has had an absolute explosion of housing, especially where I live. We've got what's called the villages, and that is just yeah, a yeah, sprawling mass of, of elderly people. Um, so are there any kind of reoccurring themes that you've heard him talking about with his observation being in construction in Florida specifically, whether it's you know the way that we're building the communities or anything at all? Yeah. So as far as like managed growth and all that, um, I, I didn't hear as much of that. But with my dad, it was interesting. Early on, he was in the home building process. And this is when Florida was just sort of, especially Southwest Florida, was just sort of coming into its own. So he was a, a developer of communities and things. Um, he always wanted to bring a different look to what the masses tended to get. Right. Um, he it, like uh, I think when he built one of his most recent communities, everybody was going with sort of the Italian Renaissance style. And he said, let's go back to old Florida, man. Let's let's go back to like the Hemingway vibe and, and create an enclave there. So he was always throughout his life one to sort of pivot away from what the masses were doing. But I will tell you this. Twice in our lives, in my life, um, I saw what it's like to be an entrepreneur, especially in that industry, in the development industry. And, and twice I watched my folks go through, you know, tough, tough, tough financial times when the music stopped. Um, he went from developing houses to developing more uh, sort of larger projects. And after he battled back from sort of the, the first thing, now with my brother's, uh, they created this really neat retail space outside of Naples, kind of on the edge of the Everglades. And if if growth continued the way it was going, this place was in the right spot at what would could be the right time. You know, it just needed to grow into it. Well, they built it. It was amazing. It had his fingerprints all over it. And the doors opened in 2008. And lines of cars down the street, man, as far as you could see in our family, tears in our eyes, dad, you did it, man. You paid the price and you, it, it was all worth it. And then October, 2008 shows up and the music stops and the bottom drops out. And it became clear and just, just within days, almost, this is not going to work. It's not going to be fixable. And uh, the growth that was necessary to sustain this thing is not going to happen. Um, so, I've seen the trends in the real estate market through my dad's experiences um, teach a lot of lessons. And now that the growth has happened again, go figure that same location is exactly where it needed to be. You know, the timing was just off a little bit, um, but he still planted some seeds that my brothers were able to, to turn into something amazing now. But, uh, but yeah, I tell you what, man, it was tough for everybody in 2008 when when the economy just just tanked. But in Southwest Florida, it was a bloodbath, especially if you were in the development. You know, you saw million, million, million dollar golf courses and the million dollar houses on these multi billion dollar golf courses, 
and just weeds growing up on the golf course like wheat because the developers like banks taking us out. So, um, so that that's an industry that you 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 know feast or famine, literally, literally. So while we're on that topic for a sec, I want to stay with the child. I got one more question, then we'll kind of progress through. Yeah, sure. But we definitely have some things to discuss as far as leadership in the last couple of years that we saw. Yeah. You know, and again, bringing solutions to problems, not just throwing stones. Yeah. When you look back retrospectively at that period that, as you said, was so damaging to so many people, what were some of the leadership failures back there, whether it was in the political space or other areas? That that led to that? Yes. Well, you know, obviously you got the the subprime mortgage and and people were just chasing profits without even understanding what was going on. And one could, I think, pretty easily connect the dots to to cryptocurrency and all. People are diving after the shiny thing. They're going, well, I don't really know how it works, but man, this guy's making a ton of money. So there's, you know, we we get blinded and distracted by, you know, by by growth and by seeming uh, strength and and profit. So you you had all those mechanisms, uh, and I think there was a lot of reinforcing functions that as long as as long as the music doesn't stop, um, what was happening was there's just a, a, there was an assumption that the curve continues in the same direction it's in right now, and that when when you're developing properties or you know in this industry we're talking about. You know, sometimes you have to borrow money here from equity in order to pay for this next phase of the project to keep that going. And then uh, once that pays off, then we can pull from that and we can keep this next thing going. So it was always, I mean, it almost looking back on it, it almost felt a little bit like a, a Ponzi setup in that in order to make the curve keep going, we got to keep borrowing from ourselves. And it works as long as that model plays off. But as soon as things start getting shaky, you know, that's that's when the banks went, hang on, okay, we need to collect money. And people were like, well, my money's tied up in the, the next step. And they said, well, you got to pay for the last step. And it was just, it was amazing how quickly the the assumption, the flaw in the assumption was demonstrated. And, you know, from a leadership standpoint, I guess the the thing that was missing was some humility, you know, was... um was was some wisdom was hopefully we're not ignoring the lessons of the past and doing the same things now because it's so it's easy to do that when things are going well and i will tell you this this is this is kind of a a little bit of a shift toward the conversation you know of of leadership writ large but let's start with this as the point of entry no system drifts toward excellence. No system drifts toward excellence. Now that could be your physical system, you know, your physical body. It doesn't, you, you got to work. If you want excellence, you got to work because there's a lot of things pulling you away from that. Your marriage doesn't drift toward excellence. It drifts towards decay. It drifts toward, you know, lack of passion. It drifts away from excellence unless you, you, you focus on that. And I think a lot of times, in our society, we drift from our values. We drift from our principles. Um, and th- because there's this natural tendency, whether it's just sort of human rationalization, comfort, uh, laziness, fatigue, we drift away from what we say we are 
you know, as a nation, as a company, as, as a tribe. Um, and in this, in this model, I do some work with the special forces and, and the folks down at the joint special ops um, university and at McDill air force base in Tampa, they've mapped out this really cool framework for drift, for moral drift and ethical drift. And if you can imagine sort of this, the two by two matrix, right. Is on one side is we are right in line with our values and our principles and our standards and our commitments. Okay. We are in integrity with that on one side, on the other side, we're away from it and that's not good, but the other dimension is really important. And I think this is important for our our country too. What's happening with the mission. That's what, that's what the vertical axis is. Cause if, We've drifted away from our standards and values, but the mission's still getting done. The economy still feels like it's going okay. You know, there hasn't been a suicide in our unit. You know, we're getting away with it. If the mission's still getting done, yet we've drifted away from our standards and our principles, buckle up. Because it's only a matter of time because of that natural drift that you turn the corner and you end up in what we'll say is the bottom left-hand quadrant, which is we've drifted from our standards and the mission's no longer getting done. It's the oh crap moment. It's the front page of the newspaper. Everything breaks down. The big scandal, uh, the sexual assault, the, the marriage is now broken beyond repair. And when we hit that oh crap moment, all heads turn and ask, how did we get here? And the answer is, not all at once, man. Little by little, we had drifted. And yet, because there wasn't a big consequence, um, we were tolerating it. And it's in that quadrant where the mission's getting done, but we've drifted away. That's where leadership is most important. Because it's the leader's job to recognize we've drifted and to just fight their way back to the standards and the values and principles. And maybe that's shining a light on the fact that we don't know what the hell we're talking about in this industry and what we're buying and selling, you know, uh, or we've, you know, as a country, we say we stand for this and then we tolerate this or we elect this, or we're looking past this or we're rationalizing this. Um, it's the leader's job to recognize when we've drifted. And it's most important when we drifted and the and the the consequence hasn't shown up yet, you know. That's that's what I think the the big takeaway there is. Well, firstly, I love that kind of visualization. I think that's so pertinent, and I can see that in, for example, the last fire department I worked for. I've worked mm -hmm. for some phenomenal fire departments. This wasn't one of them, and uh, okay. they they protect the most famous theme park, I would argue, on planet Earth. Um, okay. We had a near miss where the guy that ended up murdering all those people in Pulse had gone to where my station was, yeah, uh, down yeah. In, in the area there, Disney Springs. And uh, I happened to be overseas when it happened. When I came back, I was like, all right, what are we doing? What's changed? What's new equipment? You know, what, what training are we doing with, with the law enforcement? Nothing. Under the rug, it goes. And so that's exactly what I've been Because we got saying. away with it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Ooh, good so, thing. And then let's keep on keeping on. And I've been saying that, that in, in the world of mathematics, that you, you're one more roll of the dice closer to that disaster now, the law of probability. So, you know, there's that. But then also, if you look at right now, what I see, and I don't have the news, I unplugged my TV, I mean, the, the, the cable side a long, long time ago, like a decade Good ago. But 
you know, we have social media now and what fills my feed? Oh, this ex-president is now in court and oh, we can't drink this beer anymore. There's a transgender person on it. And I'm like, really? We just had a mass shooting yet again. And already two days later, we've forgotten about that. That to me is the massive drift. The mission is the health and security of the American people and our ability to help people outside of our country as well. And yep. we're bickering about this my, you know, minutia. We've totally not, not even, we haven't drifted. We're, we're now talking to a volleyball on an island. You know what I mean? We're that far yeah. away. And, and we think we, we're not going to get good leadership if we keep the same system as well, because the system that we've got has shown from left and right that you know we do not get leaders and we keep hearing the same thing the lesser of two evils so i think even our ability to choose leaders has drifted so far from what it used to be yeah and i oh my gosh i see this so much and it it shows up in language is when there is an obvious deviation there's an obvious blip that man come on we're better than this how the leaders respond to that the language they use do they go, you know what, we're right, we got, let's let's own that, or can we explain it away and blame somebody? Blame is never a leadership competency, man. But it, we've got so comfortable in that third, uh, in that quadrant up there, when the mission's getting done, and we can we can explain away, we can rationalize, we can blame the other party, um, and that keeps us feeling good. And we, like you said, we just moved that much closer to the oh crap moment. Um, you know, I don't know wherever people fall on this standard, but when you, uh, you know, a couple of years ago on the 6th of January, when we're looking at the people's house, the, the, the capital of the nation, and you're seeing what happened, you can't help but go, whoa, there's, this is not what we should be doing. You know, there, there's a, obviously this is a big enough event that everybody in the room should go, not that. We we all agree not that right, and boy, it it does not take long for people to reintroduce language that just is like, well, you know, it's it's okay. And there, here I'll give you a, I'll give you a quote that I heard at a, uh, um, it came from the education domain, uh, Gruntner and Whitaker, and it says this it says the culture of an organization, and I'll say a country or a family or a, a, a um, firefighting unit. The culture of any organization is largely defined by the worst thing the leader will tolerate, right? So if you tolerate that, especially if you're the leader, you've just said it's inbounds. You know, the standard you walk past is the standard you endorse. Um, and God help you if you're modeling it, because, man, you really want to get it into the culture for the leader to model it. You know, there's... If there's a difference between the the video and the audio, people are going with the video every time. I'm watching you, and if if you you are the model for what we really think and how we really act, and um, I think there's just there's just power in the language that people use, and it's what signals what we are willing to tolerate and allow from ourselves, and um, and that you know it's what's funny is people shake their head and they're like, man, that's hypocritical. We are so bothered by hypocritical things, especially in politicians, um, but in all leaders, yet we we lament it and we allow it, you know, and uh, it's that's the big challenge is it's I think this country, it's going to take a leader who who 
signals accountability, even within their own tribe to go, you know, not everybody on our side of the table always gets it right. Matter of fact, that dude's onto something and he's wearing the other team's jersey. And I want to honor that. You know what? This side of our time, we need to stop that. We're better than that. And, you know, we, we need to, I think a leader will emerge where people go, I'm not really even sure which side you're on, but I, I get it. And finally, somebody's saying that. And I think that's why the independent party is, you know, growing so fast is people go, I need, it can't be just the two extremes. It can't be. Well, I think you said the word leader. You know, people, you know, we talk about this discussion. Oh, I don't want to talk about politics. Well, it's not. Politicians are their entire own breed. What I want to see is leadership. And we haven't seen a leader in this position for a long time. I mean, you saw tyranny with a lot of the, the way the last couple of years were handled as far as mandates and all kinds of things. I mean, the number of people I know whose, whose jobs were taken or were threatened who were on the front line with no PPE and no vaccinations and everyone was absolutely fine. And then all of a sudden now they're, you know, selfish murderers because they won't take a vaccine that as we progress through, we realize was nowhere near as effective. And it's not, that's not even the topic. I got vaccinated. I'm not scared of it either, but middle of the road leadership. And the same thing, like you said, I know of people that were in the law enforcement side on, you know, in that January incident and I know people died in that January incident. And I know if I try to break my way into a government building, I'd probably get shot. But all of a sudden now there's these fairy tales. Oh, it wasn't as bad. Like you said, it wasn't as bad. No, take a step back. It was really bad no matter how you look at it. We should not be, you know, rushing into government buildings and doing the things that they did. So the moment you're and trying to normalize- And there's baby in the bathwater. It doesn't mean you, you are against everything on your side of the table if you acknowledge that that thing was unacceptable. But, you know, it's it's we've gotten to a point where if you acknowledge the, the a point or value of anybody on the other side, you obviously are, are not loyal or you hate America or something like that. And that's childish. Absolutely. And that's the thing, like, you know, when you come from another country initially and you're talking about some things, I'm sure there's people that think. But, you know, and say behind my back, because I don't have it said to my face, oh, you know, why don't you just F off back to England then? It's like, yeah, or you could actually care about this country enough to stay here and try and be a part of the solution. You know, it's, and that's it's patriotism. Yeah. Uh, you know, a language that's been sort of morphed over time. I think we get back to the heart of patriotism, you know, and citizenship, you know, at the local level, but, you know, even at the national level, um, it's wanting to make better. You know, it's it's believing in the potential and the beauty. And, you know, for, for America, America is it's the great experiment that gives hope to the rest of the world. But it's beautiful. It's imperfect. It's beautifully imperfect. But to at least I think, you know, patriotism is wanting to take it from where it is, its imperfections and move it forward because you believe in it so much and you love it so much. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Well, I want to get to, you know, unpack the actual tenets of true leadership so that then maybe we can compare and contrast and yeah, kind of sure. know what we're going to be looking for in the future. Yeah. Before we do, you obviously ended up in the teaching role in, in the 
the ROTC. My, my son is actually in the Army JROTC at the moment. Yeah, and I've got to great. see what an amazing program that is as a parent watching my son grow within, you know, more mentors outside his own family. So firstly, what was your brother's experience of that program? I know it wasn't JROTC, but the ROTC program at the college level for him as a student. Yeah. So my, again, we had a few go through service academies, which is just one path to commissioning. And you're sort of immersed in the military environment at a service academy. Um, and then my one brother, Danny, went through um, the ROTC program at the college level, Barry College in Rome, Georgia. Um, and, and that was his path of em- entry into the army. And so if you're asking about his experience or all the experiences, um, his experience Again, I'm seven years removed from him, but his was, um, you know, I think there's a, there's a tribe, there's a culture, you know, associated with each ROTC program. They want to introduce you to, to the army culture writ large. And there's a, you know, the army is very skills based and, you know, tactics based. So we're going to, we're going to do field expeditions and things like that. So I think, like everywhere, he was exposed to some positive leadership examples um, and some negative ones. In the ROTC programs, it's a leadership laboratory. So some of your leadership experience is coming from a knucklehead college kid that's just a little bit older than you or maybe the same age, but you know, rank wise, they're trying to lead and inspire and influence you. And Lord knows you pick up a lot of lessons learned positive and negative going through that. But my, my perception of what his journey was is um, he really resonated with the mission where we stand for something bigger than ourselves. You know, we're up to something that matters and that was appealing and inspiring. And I think he also gravitated towards the structure that there's a, there's a process for us pulling this off. And we can train our way to excellence and we can we can model it. And knowing my brother, Dan, as, as well as I do, he's just one of those natural folks that has a heart for people. And he's rooting for the people that he's leading. So I think it gave him a forum to just sort of demonstrate what comes naturally to him. And he progressed up. And ironically, of my sister went, she served in the government for over 20 years as a civilian. But of all the five basic boys who went into the military, got commissioned, the one who went ROTC ended up retiring at the highest grade out of all of us. So I thought that was interesting. That is indeed. So one of the things when we talk about, um, you hear the phrase diversity, and I talk about this a lot because I think it's a very important message. What I've seen, whether it's the fire mentorship program that one of my friends has in Ocala, whether it's the JROTC program that I've seen, you know, with my own eyes with my son, the way it appears that you actually create diversity in an organization is you find areas that are underserved and you give them the tools to find the best people within that community. So, for example, Chris's program if it's a central location, all these kids have to do is get to this fire station. They'll get the, the equipment given to them. They'll get the training given to them. They, you know, they obviously form this cohesive right. group. There are um, scholarships to the fire academy itself. There are certainly agencies waiting to pick them up on the other end if they, if they graduate. And so you find the best of all these different groups and you raise them up. What have you seen now with, with the, I know you're slightly higher at the kind of college level by this point, but what are you seeing as far as the impact of these programs on raising up 
young men and women that maybe wouldn't have had an opportunity if it wasn't for a program like that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so when I came in, all right, so we got a couple different ways to look at that. Um, when I came into the Air Force Academy, um, you know, women had been there for a decade, right? So it we didn't know any different. And there were enough of them there that it was just, hey, we're all in this together. And then you got, you know, I mean, you still got teenage hormones and all that stuff going on that introduced themselves into that dynamic. Um, so what I saw then and man, fast forward now 30 years later, what I've seen now is it's it's great. When I go and speak to like last week, I was at the Air Mobility Command um, senior non-commissioned officers course is it was just the, the r- racial diversity, the gender diversity um, at this not senior non-commissioned officer level was amazing. I mean, it, it was representative of the population and these folks were sharp. Holy cow, they were sharp. And they were sharp regardless of the plumbing or the pigment. They were just sharp people that, thank God, they were introduced to the uh, to this avenue. And for some of them, it was... It was a way out that that had they not known, they might not have gotten out of very tough situations. Um, so I I have personally seen just amazing talent show up that might not have otherwise gotten there. So there, I'm assuming there were deliberate uh, initiatives that reached into populations that may not have been aware of the military. And you know, you think about it now given how few people have family members that have served in the military now, you know? So with regard to familiarity with the military, almost everybody's an underserved population with regard to that as a resource. So we've just got to do a better job of telling the story to say, there's something here that matters. Um, I think we need to do a better job of connecting it back to, to serve the nation and to serve the world. I mean, this is, it is about national security is about, you know, world stabilization and, and security and whatnot, uh, as opposed to just, Hey, it's a great way to pay for college. I think we reinforce maybe the wrong message when we step away from, you know, you are raising your hand and you are pledging your allegiance to an idea and a document. The constitution beats it all. It doesn't matter who's in the white house, the constitution wins. And that's what you're up to. And again, you are protecting the great American experiment. So I think we need to do a, a good job of making sure everybody understands that. Um, but representation of people getting in and diversity of thought, background, experience, it's a powerful force multiplier to have very different folks show up as long as they're all aligned on the mission and what we're trying to do. Because you can get a very different collection of people different backgrounds and mindsets, but that's not always a good thing if they're all just sort of looking out for themselves or their own best interests. So focused on the mission externally. I'll give you one more point though. When I was at the Citadel, women had not been there very long and they had not come into the Citadel in numbers that could create sort of that tipping point. So when I came back there in 2000 to 2002, I think, or 2003 to 2005, 
there it was possible for companies, which was the squadron level equivalent, or you know, there's the the unit, the smaller unit, it was possible for them to find themselves in a season without women. It just because the numbers worked out where here we are without women again. And it was amazing how quickly the mindset shifted back to one that was unhealthy, right? In those units. Um, it just, it's amazing. It recalibrated back and and all the lessons learned and all the insights had to kind of be re relearned. And uh, so now I think the, the balance is a little bit different, but um, I was always impressed and inspired by a lot of the female cadets there because they were just, they were in it and they had to be a living example that um, was strong enough to overwhelm some of the biases that had crept back in. And not that the whole military isn't facing that, but uh, I think, you know, the, the diversity is a powerful thing. It's just got to be managed properly. You've got to, uh, like my cadets would go, do you think women should be here? I go, not the wrong ones. I don't think the wrong men should be here either. So just tell me what the standard is and then let's go. Let's get after it. Um, but they just wanted to stop at the first question. Yeah, absolutely. It's something I've talked about in the fire service. The only prejudice you can have on a fire ground really is those who can and those who can't. We're wearing gear from head to toe. We've got a mask on our face. You can't hear our voice. The air is you know, flowing through. And so you can see who is able to do the job and who's not. And it's irrelevant. I love that pigment and plumbing. That's a good way of putting it. But also, I think with the JROTC program, what I'm seeing is that it's not just, you know, um, gender or sexual orientation or, or race. There's a lot of kids that, like you said, they're not grown around military. Maybe their whole experience has been video games and TV and chicken wings and Sunday football games. And, you know, so now they're getting these mentors they're like, oh, you know, the, the, you know, you start to learn the tribalism element, the purpose, the the service, and so I think it's it's far outside the, what we used to think of the pigeonholes of you know the underserved. It's the underinspired now. The un, you know the kids that just haven't got that in their family dynamic, and so even though my household, I hope, is you know has got a lot of positive attributes, there isn't that military influence specifically. Even though obviously I'm I'm affiliated with a lot of people now. And so for him to see that with his own eyes and these people all wearing uniforms and marching together and you know, him being able to be a leader at 15 years old in his you know, organization, uh, it's been amazing to watch. So, And then with that purpose that you talked about, I think that's a key thing I've seen in the fire service. At times, people have scooped together a group that they need you know, like literally scooped them. All right, you're all whatever. Box checked. All right, move right. on. Got the bodies. Yeah. Yep. And then it's, that purpose isn't there with some of them, with some of them. So you take the mentorship app, you know, model, you go into those communities, you find the people that understand that why, that have that drive. Now you end up with a group of phenomenal people that have risen up to the bar that everyone that they're proud to serve and everyone else who's not an absolute turd welcomes them with open arms because they know they're another valuable member of the team. Yeah. And you, you hit on so many important things. There is that let's, I mean, these, the kids want to be inspired, but we all want to be inspired. And there's just a fundamental human dynamic, right? It's called in-group psychology where, where people are drawn to connection, even if it's just with one other person, because my identity who I am is defined largely by who I am with and who I am not with. So as if I'm looking for tribes, if that's just an innate hunger of mine, 
I will modify my behaviors to maintain membership in a tribe that I want to be a part of, right? So this can go well or it can go poorly and people will adjust their behaviors. And this is how gangs work. And this is how toxic units emerge is people start saying, hey, if you want to be a part of this, this is how we roll here. And it can go south or it can go north. Now we're back to leadership again because your son's ROTC detachment. He's, you know, he could be playing video games, but something about our JROTC caught his attention. So he decides to dip a toe in there. Now he's got to change his behaviors. You have to manage your time a certain way. You have to wear your hair a certain way. There are certain uniforms and outfits you use and you talk a weird way. But if you want to be part of this, man, that's the deal. So the commander of his JROTC unit is mentoring him on something. Now, hopefully it's positive stuff. Um, and if to, to whatever degree he's raising his game, this guy is a leader, the type of leader that we want. And your son is now learning lessons on how to inspire and lead and influence other people who want to be a part of this. Um, there's a, the Sicilian mafia was referred to as Cosa Nostra, which I'm not endorsing the Sicilian mafia, but you know, it's, it's a group of people that were up to something and were fiercely loyal, you know, uh, to, to a degree, but, I just like the phrase, Cosa Nostra translates to this thing of ours. I just like, I like, I think that's poetic. And I think part of the leader's job is to say, if you're part of this, here's what we're up to and here's why it matters. We don't just need bodies. We need bodies directed toward that and to protect and serve and to, we race to the sound of the guns or we, we attack the fire before it attacks us. There's something that if people connect with that, and it's the leader's role to make that connection, they will modify their behaviors to maintain membership in that. And they will—they don't mind being held accountable to high standards. They'll compete to be a part of an organization with high standards. Look at the Navy SEALs, look at these other special forces, you know, first responders. I want in. I'm willing to do all that crap as long as the standards are consistently enforced. That's what I've noticed for leaders is, man, if you if you are inconsistent with enforcing those standards, I don't know what that means. And I got to start playing games now. And now I'm got to look out for myself. We got we got a safety issue and I'm going now. Now it gets into protection mode. So you just hit on the very pertinent topic that I have observed myself. So I mentioned I've been on, on four different fire departments, arguably one of the best and one of the worst. And then a couple of very, very good ones in between. But what I found was what I consider the best, which is Anaheim um, in uh, California, their uh, orientation was, well, their, their hiring practice was extremely um, competitive. I was one of a thousand people that were already fully certified for the job, fire, um, EMT or paramedic yeah. experience in other places. I mean, the resume was, was stacked. And then they were notorious for about cutting about 25% of each class that they actually yep. hired. So the attrition rate was 25%. So it's an exclusive tribe. Not anybody gets in. No, exactly. Yep. And, and they're, they're, they tested every four months. You, know, you had this big workup for that whole year. And I saw people lining up out the door for this, like I said. Conversely, some of the departments I worked for recently, their bar isn't just low. You I mean, the, the last one, you had to dig a trench to put the bar in. And they, you know, well paid, slightly better, you know, working conditions in a lot of places. And they have to like scrape whatever they can to get people to even test there. And what I have seen is there seems to be this kind of 
belief in this mythology that if you lower standards, you're going to be able to fill the places easier. What my you know experience and now really common sense sees is well, if you lower standards, people in our professions want to rise to a challenge. So if you just open the door, not only can anyone walk in. But I think you turn away a lot of people because that challenge isn't there. So what is your perspective, you know, with all the, the leadership elements that you've been a part of on this lowering of the bar to quote unquote, you know, improve recruitment? I I have seen that play out um, to to open access to certain folks. Um, maybe standards get lowered Hey man, we we really love you in here. We're gonna lower the standards. There's another path for you to get in the in the door. Well, eventually, there's going to be a performance event that's going to demonstrate you don't have what we said we need. And if we're serious about what we need, you set that person up for failure first of all, because now they're in over their head. And what I've seen is, in order to now have to survive or um, in, in that environment people will now start doing anything they have to do. And it might turn into honor violations, might turn into character things that I shouldn't have gotten in here in the first place. And it's, it's, it frustrates them. It sets them up for very, you know, dilemmas in order to maintain membership in this. Um, But it also signals to the other folks who came in under the standard that should have been there that our word isn't good, man. We, we say we're the best of the best. And yeah. And then you come on, you do this. Um, People are hungry. Absolutely. Like what you said, people are hungry for um, a challenge. I saw this at a recruiting event and this was uh, I was, I was helping out with, uh, with at high school levels. We're going visiting high schools and I was just there to, to sort of support and answer some questions for the air force but the other services were there and you had an auditorium full of high school kids that may or may not know about the military. So you get the parade up there. The Air Force, or the Army stands up there. Uh, I think we we went first. The Air Force went up there first. And we're kind of the cool kids and we've got the really cool toys and we're sort of maybe perceived as the more intellectual. I'm totally using stereotypes here, but of the services. We're the newer ones. The technology is a little bit better. So if you like that sort of stuff, pick this. And therefore, in our presentation, it's a lot of gee whiz, you know, cool planes and things like that. Come to us. We're the cool kids and we got the neat toys. Then the Navy shows up. See the world. Hey, you saw Top Gun, right? That that was us. And we've got planes, too. So they show all their technology and all. And they had a good presentation. The Army shows up and they're like, we got tanks and we do stuff and be all you can be. And, and you know, Army strong and, uh, you know, money for high school, for college. So they did their whole pitch. Slides audio, the whole bit, all three of us did. And then the Marine Corps. You talk, you talk about culture. There's some power, man. There's something about identity and culture with the Marine Corps. This dude steps up, Marine, and he has the uniform just painted on. It's mad. It's just beautiful. He's got the rack of ribbons, looks like a fruit salad. Just walks across the stage, no slides, no audio, doesn't even use a microphone. And all he says, he walks to the front of the stage, he goes, odds are you don't have what it takes to be in the Marine Corps. If you think you do, I'll be over here. Where does everybody go? 
they go, oh, we're like, oh, come on, man. I'll Everybody show you. Up the Marines. I'll show <laughs> you, man. I'll show, check this out, you know. And they got a pull-up bar. We've got a slide presentation that will bring tears to your eyes. This guy's got a pull-up bar. He's like, stop talking. Just show me what you got. And people wanted desperately to demonstrate I'm the type of person who can get in with you guys. There's something special here. So just at a, a primal level, I've seen the theater play out beautifully. Um, people don't mind the standards as long as the standard. I mean, you can't fake the pull-up. Do the freaking pull-up or not. Don't tell me you can do two. I just watched, or 10, I can watch you do two. So come back when you can do eight. See ya. That's that's the deal, man. So um, I, I stand, standards, again, we're back to that whole thing. Is that Culture is defined by the worst thing the leader will tolerate, and that comes back to standards as well. Well, it's funny you talk about the Marine thing. I think pretty much every Royal Marine friend of mine has quoted the tv commercial that they ran in the uk for their enlistment and it basically said 99 percent of the military will never be a royal marine i think that was right. something I'm, I'm paraphrasing but that was it it's like oh really okay i'm yeah. gonna show you you know so yeah. it's, it's the same thing and it's 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 what i saw in anaheim i remember i tested because i will move back to the east coast and i went and did a cpat um practice test which is our physical test just to make sure, because again, you know, even though I was in great shape and everything, I'm like, all right, I'm not, you know, a narcissist. Let me make sure I'm sure. where I need to be. So I yeah. blow it out of the water when I go back east. And the guy said to me, you're the only person I've ever known that's left Anaheim Fire Department. And it was purely for family. We had a little boy and she wanted to go back to, to her, you know, where her family was. And that is what you want to hear about your place of yeah. work, your department, your, you know, special operations unit, whatever it is that people never leave. You know, so I want to flip this on you because and I know you've talked about this in some of your other and many of your other podcasts. But what was it about that? What do you miss or what to you you went, holy cow, that's what it's supposed to look like? What was the secret sauce at Anaheim with regard to culture and what the leaders did to create that culture? I think it goes back to what you're going to expand on you know, in this conversation, but you touched on already. It was, you know, the the lowest level that the department would tolerate they set that bar so high that and we saw people we had people that we were hired with that we you know gave a hug to and off they went out the door because they didn't make it but then after especially after you make it through that crucible the first year and you don't become what they call a yad which is a year and a day where you suddenly become a turd but you know you you were embraced because these people know how hard it was to go through that as i'm sure it is with buds and sas selection and a lot of these other things um and if you make it through there like we didn't even have fitness standards because it was just a cultural thing not everyone was in wow. great shape don't get me wrong but a lot of them were up and we used to work out together all the time and no one told us to i think that was the real takeaway and if you have a great probationary firefighter that just made it a year you're going to have great regular firefighters they're going to become great engineers great the captains over there they don't have lieutenants great battalion chiefs and there's you know there's always those anomalies but when you set the bar at the front door that culture carries through the ranks as well and so now you end up with battalion chiefs and chiefs who have walked the walk who have been through the fire themselves who know what it's like to to you know run all these calls and you know more often than not at least at the battalion level they never forgot it Whereas what I saw in my last place was the 
the actual chief chief came through fire prevention. So never been a firefighter. The operations chief who was in charge of, you know, the actual boots on the ground came up through dispatch 911. Mm. So had no idea, neither of them about the job. And the other side rule EMS only, not the fire side. So you add that with fragile egos, you had fired up people. And it's funny, I was just telling someone this the other day, a lot of the, the known fired up leaders in the fire service they are not received well by their own fire department. Are interesting is everyone else that does, you know, when they're outside looking in. So, um, yeah, contrasting those two, it was really, you know, like you said, it's setting that bar and just standing by your word, saying this is where we expect you to be and we're going to keep it. And I think it's deviated a little bit since, you know, I've been gone for 15 years from that particular department now. But, you know, when you hold yourself to that standard and, and, and you, the, the, the why is so ingrained. Like we knew we were there because yeah. people's lives were at stake. That yeah. almost seems to be forgotten in some place or disregarded or not even in right. people's minds. And so that disconnect is absolutely terrifying to me. And then the other part, which even Anaheim still hasn't got yet, is the investing in your people. And a lot of people now, they're, we're deviating in the fire service because a lot of our people still get the mission that's why we show up every day. That's why volunteers around America still show up to fire stations every day. But we're deviating from what we're t- doing as far as taking care of our people. And we're having, you know, heart disease and cancers and, you know, suicides and overdoses. And uh, as, you, as you said, people are like, well, well, you know, oh, well, moving on. And we're forgetting that that's a huge red flag on leadership down and then from the ground mm-hmm. level up as well. Well, I want to hit you, man. You hit on so many good things here. I'm, I'm glad this is a nine-hour podcast. So this gives us a little bit. <laughs> it of It can be. If we might just make it. We do. Might, might just make. It. But if in that, I want to give hope to people who may find themselves in a battalion chief job or in a senior leadership job, and that didn't come up through those ranks, right? Because there may be people who good heart, and I want to lead well, or this is I find myself in this role. Um, what would it take in order for somebody who did not come through that process? I came through dispatch, but I want to serve this unit well. What would it take for them to still be successful? I would say the same humility that I saw in the good leaders that had come up through the ranks. Understanding, and I did this even like in a rescue, a two, two man, or man and woman team on what, you know, the ambulance that we have the fire gear on, we call it our rescue. I might be the lead medic, but I'll turn to my EMT and be like, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this. And what am I missing? Are you seeing anything that I'm not? That's just at the you know person-to-person level. So to me, having the, hu- the humility to ask people who know more about something than we do, and for me in the fire service, there were experts in every field. I was not the subject matter expert in anything. I was just trying to juggle all my skills as best I could. So training your people well, allowing them to lead without question not micromanaging but then also going to the people who really are the leaders in those fields and those ranks and saying what do you need how can i help exactly so it's a so humility that's i mean that's there's your point of entry there that i think anybody whether they come up through the ranks or not there was a great story in the harvard business review about a a lady who found herself in a ceo position um, with this technology company that was very engineering based she wasn't an engineer she came from a finance background, and that's what the company needed. And because she wasn't an engineer and she's a woman, perhaps, you know, there's a there's a cultural thing there too. 
And she said it was it was a tough lift because they just she was dismissed before she even had a chance to come in. And she said she rallied the senior engineers and said, I have never been an engineer. I'm amazed at what you all do. But I am now in a position where I have to lead this company. I need you. And your job is not to make me an engineer. I'm hungry to learn anything you think I need to know so I can serve you in this role. And with that, I think she she turned the table and said, I want to honor the fact that you are the expert here. I'm going to do my best to always be a student of my craft. And part of that is learn what I need to know. But uh, there, there, I think there's a bridge that can still be built by somebody who didn't come up through the ranks, but it's got to be a humble heart. If you pretend like you did, but you didn't, now you're just flexing your ignorance. You don't know what it's like to have been, you know, on the front lines. So I think there's a, I think that the humility thing is, cannot be overstated. Um, I think making sure people stay connected to the purpose of meaning lives are at stake. Um, I was out visiting a dear friend of mine who does uh, a wildland fire down out in Colorado Springs and he's doing amazing things. And he's the type of leader you want pulling together. And it's a volunteer force there. And he's created a space um, for, you know, for the, for the unit to come together and eat together and train together and all that and build that tribe. Um, But we talked about visual signals, symbols in this space and, you know, burnt helmets, you know, is that these are, you know, or if, if, if we've lost somebody, if we've lost a firefighter um, to have something of theirs on display that reminds us, this is real. This is, this is the big deal to have children's shoes. You know, it, it connects maybe on different level. I heard this, man, I hope this is true. And maybe somebody can, can research this. Vladimir Zelensky when he sort of came into this wartime leader role, one mandate or request he put out to everybody was take every picture of me down. If you have a picture of me in the chain of command or whatever, take it down, put up pictures of Ukrainian children anywhere you can. I thought that was brilliant. If true, if not, it's still brilliant. But but for that simple thing to say, all we got to do is look at that or, or point to that. And I don't need, there's no burden associated with me inviting you to say this is important. You know, so I think in our organizations, visible cues can be a powerful thing to say if you made it into this tribe. Uh, the, the reason the standards are so high is because of that. The reason training safety matters so much. Let me tell you the story behind that helmet right there. And that will never happen again. And I loved that guy. And my heart is broken every time I see it. And, you know, I think we need that. And I think a leader's job is just to keep beating the drum of Cosa Nostra. You know, it's this thing of ours. Well, I love that also with the chronic illnesses that plague our profession too. I think every person you've lost to suicide, to overdose, to cancer, to, you know, heart attacks and strokes and all these things, they should be plastered on the, the chief's wall. Like these are your people. This is your tribe. And right now, sadly, we're still working people the way we did a hundred years ago when we actually sat around smoking guitars and uh, smoking guitars. That'd be weird. Smoking cigars <laughs> or guitars. Um, and you know, and petting the Dalmatian, you know, now you stand on any main artery road in a city, 
you're going to hear sirens nonstop. It's a very, very different world and we work them the same. So this is why they're just falling apart. So I think for us in the station, in the training grounds, in the gym, those are an amazing things as well as, you know, in the headquarters, making sure that we got the right safety gear and having the, the right level of training, but also the people we lose from the other side. The, the the unspoken element the you know it's still line of duty in my opinion but it's not seen as that way and how can we change the environment so rather than breaking our people down we can have them thrive you know and this this applies i mean even a lot of the gray area officer involved shootings when do people ever ask when did that person last sleep were they forced to do two yeah. shifts back to back yeah you know that's never even discussed that's brilliant. That's a great, great insight. One of the things that uh, that keeps popping up, and there's a lot of research in here, and Amy Edmondson's the lead, lead scholar in this area, but the, the idea of psychological safety. So you know, we're back to the culture and unit level. And if if it is not safe, especially in sort of these alpha environments, it's the police forces, firefighters, it's military, it's sports teams, it's sales teams even, um, for people to feel like it is safe to raise their hand and go on, I'm struggling. I need help to not feel like they're disloyal. They're less than they're weak. You know, somehow the it's got to be safe to, for, for somebody to raise their hand and say, I know you guys love me and you'll understand why I need to take a knee or I got to get right with my wife because my head's not straight with what I've, with what I got going on is people should rally to each other there. But what happens is um, I've discovered this. This is a, I think a cool word when human beings don't feel safe. Now that could be physically safe, but it's also emotionally safe and professionally safe. How's this going to affect my promotion and all that. So physically safe, emotionally safe, socially safe. When people don't feel safe, they hoard H O A R D. They just, they hoard. It's, it's a, I got to protect stuff. What's important to me. And they will hoard things that you as the leader can't afford them to hoard. They'll hoard conversations. It, they'll hoard initiative. I, I'm not taking the initiative you want me to, because I'm, I'm worried if it doesn't go well, it's going to affect my career. If I'm worried about that, that's the reason I'm not taking the initiative I could take. But the reason I'm not raising my hand saying, I don't think this is a good idea, or I think this is a safety issue, or I need help is because I've got those concerns, but if I don't feel it's safe to share them based on what I've seen around here, then it doesn't make the concerns go away, but people are just hiding and faking and lying about what they need. And I've had a lot of leaders, executives go, why don't my people tell me if they think we're going the wrong direction? I've got an open door policy. Yeah, if they perceive you've got a guillotine on the other side of the door, or they've seen how you respond when you get a little bit of feedback or somebody pushes back against your pet project, if they've seen how that goes down and it's not healthy, they're just going to tell you what you want to hear. They're going to hoard their real opinion, and you're going to be off and going until the crap moment comes. So I was just checking on my phone, make sure I got the, the name right, because I just shared a story. I'd never heard this before. One of my friends actually sent it to me and I thought this was phenomenal. And you talk about a culture that does understand. The uh, Dodgers, LA Dodgers, there was a, a baseball player, Andrew Tolles, I think I've got his name right. Um, he was suffering from mental health problems when he was playing and he ended up having bipolar and schizophrenia. At some point, he was even homeless from what I understand. Wow. So they just re-signed him He's been, he hasn't played baseball for four years, I think it is, but they've kept him on the books. So he keeps having access to the, the mental and physical health care. 
Wow. I thought that was phenomenal. How easy would it be just to cut the ties? And we have first responders that leave their fire and police departments and that's it. Zero, yeah, zero healthcare, them. nothing done. And a baseball team keeps someone on, you know, who hasn't played for them for years because they understand that tribal element and they care enough to do that. And I thought that was beautiful. And that to me is the kind of culture that we need to be looking at because I've heard that open door policy all the time. And it's the same exact thing. It's open door until you actually speak, you know, say something that needs to be said and not in an unprofessional way. And all of a sudden that door slams in your face. Yeah. And everybody else saw the slam and they learned like that. I don't speak up either. Yeah. I mean, you've just taught everybody to hoard too, but that is a, that is a beautiful story. And we're back to behavioral integrity is how many organizations say we're a family here. All right. Well, the Dodgers just said, we're a, we're the type of family that doesn't cut you loose when you have problems that don't serve us. You know, um, we got you, man, or we're worried about you. And we, we want, we want to keep you close. That's a beautiful, beautiful signal. So you said the the term behavioral integrity. Let's start unpacking that thing. Cause I know that was a big kind of, you know, nucleus of a lot of what you do now. So using for, let's use, um, the last couple of years as an example, not to get again political, but I think it's something that universally we've all experienced. So what should this look like in a positive leadership environment? And then what are some of the things that we see, whether it's, you know, the p- political side the last couple of years or whether it was in a fire department or a police department or a community that maybe we're, we're missing the point when it comes to this. So we've, we've talked about behavioral integrity in a bunch of different ways. So even that drift is the drift from the standards and what our word is. And, and, um, you know, we've talked about other things where we say we want this and, and then we do that. And we say, this is the standard. And then we tolerate that. All of this is wrapped in behavioral integrity, which is simply the perceived pattern of alignment between the leader's words and their actions. You know, and now your word, now we can unpack that. Your word is your promise made, your commitment, the values that you espouse or the values you're kind of on the hook for because of the role you're in. You know, for a priest to be standing in line at Walmart and you're, you're you know, if you're standing behind a priest and he's just dropping the F-bomb like crazy and you're like, what's with that? For him to turn around and go, well, I never said I wouldn't be, a, I wouldn't swear. You go, but you're kind of, kind of the thing you're into right that's i'm going to lay that over the top of you and i'm going to expect certain values and standards because of what you're a part of so all of that whether it's officially espoused or it's ascribed to us how much do your values align with this but the reason i like behavioral integrity versus just the word integrity writ large which is in everybody's values statements right Behavioral integrity takes it down to the moment-to-moment opportunity. In this moment, I'm watching you, man. In this moment, you are either in integrity, I've got my hands together for those of you who are listening, or I am out of integrity. So my hands have just deviated a little bit. Now, the fact that you've drifted from your faith in this moment or your promise, it doesn't make you a bad person necessarily. It just means you got a choice. Especially if you noticed it, if you know, I said, this is important to me, but man, in this moment, it sure looks like it's not. I say, this is a priority. It sure looks like it's not. We say we're a family here, or I say, I'm a, I want to delegate and I trust my, you know, my officers. 
crap, this is a moment I could probably delegate, but there's so much at stake. It's just easier if I do it. Well, then you are out of integrity with the spirit of delegation. Every time you pull the stick back, you know, or you're you're committed to being patient, but man, in this moment, it kind of got away from you. So there's the deviation in that moment from your standard and your word, but then there's the moment after that, which is what's a person like you do when you know you're out of integrity on this thing? Do you let it ride? Or do you battle like hell to get back in integrity and acknowledge and own that? So it's an in integrity, out of integrity, just constant battle. It's a mountain with no top. That's the phrase we use. But this is what this is, this is life. So as leader, the values, the standards are the standards, or they're not. Let's watch you in this moment. And it also puts the burden on you to be the living example that you are the, the video. It looks like this. And in moments of, you know, in the firefight, in, in the pandemic, in the uncertainty um, of what's going on right now, when there's uncertainty or, or lack of complete information, heads turn to the leader. People look at the leader to go, okay, fill the gaps for me. You know, are we, it, it seems like this policy is stupid. You, your actions will dictate how we respond to this policy. You know, um, if you're taking it seriously, okay, I guess we're taking it seriously. You know, oh, everybody's talking about diversity and inclusion. If you roll your eyes every time that comes up, you've just polluted the well in your organization, right? So, so behavioral integrity is just that simple moment to moment alignment. And people look at the leaders and it's the, it's that, you know, hypocrite stamp that they're going to put on you. And there's all sorts of interesting data to say that that's a big moderator. That's the it depends factor. Um, if you're constantly preaching these values and standards and safety and all these things, if you're constantly preaching that, does on the graph, does it actually increase behavior? Does it create more buy-in? Does it strengthen the team? The answer is it depends. It depends on what they think of you as the mouthpiece of that, because if they think you are a hypocrite, if they think you have low behavioral integrity, the more you talk about this stuff, the more pissed off I get. You talk about standards, you talk about fitness standards, and I see you looking like this. The more you talk about fitness standards, the more I'm going to blow stuff off. The more this culture gets polluted. The more, it's the behaviors follow, but man, it's on the graph. It's interesting because they devi- they, they just go in two different directions depending on what the perception is of the person speaking these things that need to be said. So it's, it's a huge driver of, of performance, effect, mission accomplishment, all these things. So that's a really interesting perspective because I've heard words spoken by lots of people and especially when they lose a firefighter and, you know, especially it's through self-harm and, you know, all we care and my, my, my door is always open. You know, I'm here if you need me. And yet when you look holistically, you know, and from the wellness perspective on what is going on, there are a lot of things that are fixable, but it takes courageous leadership to go to these various areas and say, look, we have to change the way we're working these people. You know, we are literally killing them, but I don't, I see that. So you're getting these people, like you said, the mouthpiece, you know, and it's the same thing as, oh, you know, make America great again. 
how? Explain to me, what is it that we're supposed to do? Because division and hatred, I hate to tell you, I don't think that's a good perspective. Yeah, that's that's not going to, yeah, that's yeah. not the path. And, and we're blame, not. You know, to say, you know, to, to, to start by blaming and taking no ownership of anything. Okay, well, that's that's not a path to greatness by any, in any arena. You know, for, for the leader, I mean, look at the greatest sports coaches in the world. After the game, very few of the legendary Hall of Fame sports coaches will go, well, these refs, the refs just suck. That's why we lost the last four games. Mm. You know, the great leaders are like, yeah, yeah it was a tough call. You know, maybe we're going we're gonna to protest, visit that. But we should have never put ourselves in a position that the game came down to one call. I mean that if you just listen to the great coaches, I, let me let's stick with the sports analogy because it translates, I think, really nicely to some of the other political and, and other things. Um, there was a huge brawl after one of the bowl games a couple of years ago. I mean, just to the point where ESPN had cut away, you know, they're doing the the handshakes after the game. And all right, let's go back to hear what some of the other bowl scores are. They come back because they're like, Craps hit something's going down here. And it was a full out melee. And one team was for the most part, just like tearing helmets off and stomping people with cleats. And the, the announcers who are used to watching a lot of sports games by, you know, frustrated people who get a little heated, it's getting chippy out there. You know, that's the phrase. This was not chippy. This was criminal. What's going on here. And as they're breaking away and things are finally settling down, you heard the sports announcers say things like, this is a dark day for college athletics. These two schools should be embarrassed that these young men who represent, that's the phrase, right? And I remember turning to my wife and I said, I can't wait to see um, what the post-game interviews are with the coaches. Because what we just witnessed right here is the product of the environment for them to even think that stuff was in bounds, right? So I want to see this. And sure enough, one of the coaches, primarily the foot stomping, pulling the helmet off kind of coach, uh, that that team, he goes, look, it's football, man. If people get banged around a little bit, I'm not going to tear my clothes about it. You know, somebody went to a football game and they got, and they got hit. You know, we'll take a look at it, but let's move on to some other stuff. And I said, this coach has just given the green light to, to almost any behavior after that as, hey, it's just football, man. We're just, you know, it's a tough sport. So I think, you know, that if you, if you say you're raising young men to, you know, let's make college athletics great again, you know, brother, you got to own moments like that too. And, and I'm watching what the coach does when, when things deviate, you got to own it and, you know, you, you got to bounce it against what we should be in a moment like that. It's the recovery moment that matters so much. Well, I think another, I'm just staying on that theme. Another thing that I've seen is this whole chess beating with the greatest country in the world, which again is allowing that drift to use your analogy. All right, just keep drifting. You know, is that, is that, a, is that an island I see? I think it's coming up. You know, instead of going, as we talked about before, that service, we're not. And underlining that, like, hey, newsflash, we're actually here on education. We're here on the obesity in the world. We're here on the crime on our streets. We, again, we talk about law enforcement. When do we ever hear, why is it that the streets of Reykjavik don't have gangs murdering each other? 
and homeless yeah. people living in you know, every every square mile and prostitution all over the place. Yeah. What are they doing differently over there that we're not doing here and vice versa? So there's some things that we do incredibly well here, but why are we not saying, actually, Norway's doing this really well? You know, Portugal, the, the drug prohibition has worked really well for them. Maybe we should consider the war on drugs as an epic failure after 80 years, but we're not hearing any of that. We're the so that's, greatest and that's country the, in the world. Where the humili- that's where the humility comes in. And I think where we can stand and say America is the greatest country in the world in that it has the potential, you know, is that we, we are great because we own and acknowledge where we could and should be better. And man, we, we rally around that because we want to be the great hope for the other nations. But to, yeah, to look past where we are, where we have deviated from what we could and should be, um, we do ourselves a disservice. You know, it's the promise of America that is, it's the idea of America and the potential that is so powerful and attractive and, and hope-giving. Um, but with that, I mean, what, what military unit doesn't focus on its, its flank, its, its weak area? To say we're we're good at this and we're going to keep dial, dialed in. We are going to fire for effect because we have hit this target and we're going to keep training to hit that target. But man, what do we need to work on? Um, and and to acknowledge that, um, yeah, at, at a national level, I mean, I'm obviously big fan of the country, big fan of America, um, and it's the principles and values that when we are we are at our best you know, individually and as a nation, when we embrace and actually live out certain values and virtues that are so, so American, but you know, they're universal too. There's, you know, there's courage and there's humility and there's compassion and there's commitment and there's, there's, there's humble pride, you know, humble, a humble swagger um, where I think when you watch the, uh, the draft night, you know, when they select the, the, NFL draft, you know, when people, especially the teams that are just in the toilet, they know they're going to want to get one of the top draft picks. What are they looking for? I think I'm always looking at how does the person carry themselves and talk to the media when they know they're going to be one of the top draft picks going to one of the worst teams. I think they're looking for humble swagger where somebody goes, I, I've, I'm going to bring some strength. I'm going to bring a mindset. We are going to bring, we are going to have the champion mentality, but watch me because I'm going to work harder than anybody else. And I have the humility. I'm going to learn from the veterans. I'm going to learn from anybody I can. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to own them, but uh, keep up with how hard I work to be great. I think most teams go, that's the guy. That's who we want. I'm always reminded of that show. I think it's Newsroom. I think Jeff Daniels is the one. Yeah. And it's, you know, they're asking him, why do you think America is the greatest country yeah. in the world? And he goes, it's, it's not. And he everyone gasps. Yeah, because it's not about like, oh, we're not the end. It's here's where we are. He said, but but we used to be and we can be again. And it's not about, I, I hate that phrase in the world because it's not a competition. But we, you know, we, as you said, the American dream is what brought me here. One of my friends, Drago is a Navy SEAL. Um, you know, hearing some of the the people that have come to the U.S. from other countries, it's the same thing. It's the true American dream. But even I just was just talking to DJ, um, your one of your good friends who you know obviously is a Native American. 
And I told him what was weird is when I first moved to the States, people would say, oh, you know, Europe is amazing. And said, you know, you've got so much history. We don't have history here. And I remember thinking, yes, you do. You just, for some reason, America seems to start in the 1700s in a lot of people's minds when we have, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So I think that's another side. To me, one of the most beautiful things about America is America, the country, the yeah. sprawling, beautiful tapestry from mountains and plains and, you know, deserts. That is the country that we're so fortunate enough to inhabit. Yeah. But I think we think of it as, DC as you know these people that we see on television and that's not what it's about it's the community it's the the tribe that is being an American or even just as small as the the street that you live in but I think that's the problem is it's almost become a caricature and we forget that it it takes every single one of us to be a, a mentor in our home and then walk outside our front door and be a mentor in our community as well and that's how you elevate your nation not by some yes elderly geriatric president or some bright orange narcissist that preceded him. And I think, you know, you're speaking about something called citizenship, which is, which is a virtue when it's practiced, you know, you can value citizenship, you can value your country, but a virtue means you put the value into action. And I think that takes a lot of the, you know, it's so easy to point to Washington DC and oh my gosh, Congress and doing, I can't, you know, to, to quote the Stoics, I can't control that stuff. I can control what I do um, and how I respond to that. And what I've got control over is local to me. How am I handling my family? How am I handling myself? How am I serving the community and those people around me? Uh, how am I modeling to folks? And Lord knows I and we, you know, many of us can can do more. Um, but we spend so much time, you know, lamenting what's happening at the at the headquarters level. We're missing opportunities to bring America to life. And I think, again, I think America, the, it's the beauty. It's, it's a beautifully imperfect country that has nothing but potential to live up to what it can be. And maybe, um, I think maybe at its origins, the make America great again concept, that that phrase was about let's, let's where, where we've gotten weak, where we've drifted from our potential, let's bring it back. Now, you know, one could say that how that that phrase got, you know, marketed and brought to life, took it in a different direction. One could argue that. How is that for understatement? But um, but I th- I think the potential in all of us, I mean, let's take it down to the individual level, you know, is how do I commit and live in integrity with my best possible self? And that causes me to look at as a husband as a dad, as a professional, as somebody leading a team, as a community member, um, my best possible self. When I'm when I'm on the money, man, I'm bringing positive value to this nation and this world. But uh, it's amazing how often I'm, you know, just scrolling on my phone, not quite my best possible self. <laughs> and yeah. I got to own that. It comes, you know, the Jocko Willink is onto something. You know, it's that ownership. Um. It's got to start there. Any development has to start with ownership because I can't want it for you. You got to want it. Well, going back to the deviation point, I kind of went off a tangent for a second. One of the things that I've seen almost is accepted culturally now is this whole wishy-washy. Like, you know, how dare you change your mind? 20 years ago, you thought this and you should still think the same thing. And that would also apply, one would think, to, oh, you know, Kevin deviated from that thing he said he was going to do. So now he's dead to me and this whole cancel culture thing, too. So talk to me about 
that perception of of changing the mind because to me when you take ownership of something and you change your mind and go hey that thing i said yesterday i actually just read this thing and i don't believe that anymore and this is what i mean my whole evolution of this podcast i'm a completely different human being through the 750 plus people i've listened to in the last six and a half years i don't think about mental health the same way i don't think about fitness nutrition a, a, a gamut of things so is that wishy-washy element is that again a byproduct of the lack of humility do you think um well that's all right so that's a great question so you know wishy-washy is one of those terms is sort of like woke that gets that that can distract from maybe the the uh, the continuum of change some of the change can be informed evolution informed growth now that i know this or i've been through that i have to adjust my worldview is i now come to appreciate that you know the first time you go to a third world country you you see waste differently you know you you appreciate things differently and all if all of a sudden you're maybe starting to pay attention to you know what you're putting in your body or what you're throwing out or what you're spending your money on well that's not just because you're woke it's because you go I have a I have a new appreciation I have gratitude about certain things so I think some of that continuum of change can be informed change some of it can be wishy-washy I mean, I've seen folks, and again, we're back in the political arena where I saw one one politician turn to this, you know, describe a person as just this list of absolute negative, toxic behaviors. This guy is this, this, and this. Now, at the point at that time, he was running against him, right? This person should never be fit for office and does this and is a liar. You can't trust anything. Here's what I've known. I've spent some time around him now. I've seen him in action. It is the worst of the worst. It's worse than you think. And fast forward, that same person just a couple of years later is, you know, kissing the ring and and lockstep. And you're like, okay, I got to make sense of that. And what that first you know, a soliloquy was so deeply embedded in what your values are and what that stands for and all that. I can't rectify that. That to me seemed a little bit more wishy-washy and seemed more politically motivated. Now it serves my best interest to align with you and my loyalty and all that. And um, so I think, you know, when people change, we, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt often when, when we change, right? We, you know, we base our, behaviors uh we evaluate our behaviors on our uh intentions we evaluate other people's behaviors based on our assumptions and we ascribe character values to them uh so i think the reason for the change is going to help me understand where things fall on that continuum and man we're back to humility aren't we if if the change is based on i was wrong or i've grown or um i've i've gotten introduced to something new that at least is an acknowledgement of humility. And that puts it in a little bit more positive side of that continuum for me. Yeah, because I think it's, it's an important thing. And I talk about this with friends that I know are struggling with addiction, for example. And they'll be like, oh, I'm such a piece of shit. I, you know, I had a drink last night. Like, you're not. 
you didn't mm. drink for one month, 10 months, whatever it was, or you didn't, you went to the gym for X amount of time and then you stopped or you ate clean and then you just went to McDonald's, whatever it was. That was one time. You're not, you know, on the protractor. Yes. If you wait long enough, that five degrees is going to send you a long, long way, but you're one day in. So you can just stop beating yourself up, stop feeling guilty and, and full of shame and just go, yeah, that was a bad day. And then and go you know back what? On the fact again. that it, the fact that it bothers you is good news because it means you want to fight to get back in integrity. And one day it doesn't mean you're a bad person, but you know, failure is an event. It's not an identity. So you know, to acknowledge that now, if it didn't bother you, if you go, well, I guess, you know, I, I had one drink, but whatever, not a big deal. That's a bigger problem than the, than the fact that you're disappointed because you know what you're capable of. You know what, what it means to be in integrity. So, all right, you've got fuel now to get back in line, but you're, you're absolutely right. That, that narrative that we have, that a failure is an identity versus an, an event. It's unfair. You know, that's that inner critic just trying to win the day. And that mindset is, is challenging. I'm, I know you do a lot of, you know, a lot of your podcasts have also been on, you know, just how people talk to themselves in those moments of challenge and failure, uncertainty and crisis. And what can we as leaders do to help people challenge and, and reshape that narrative? And I think there's, you know, there are battle cries that, that people just naturally gravitate to that maybe give them strength or hope or access to maybe a, a path through the storm. Well, you just said the word storm. That was the perfect segue because one more area in this, but I want to talk about before we get to the, the Medal of Honor side. You mentioned the phrase leadership through the storm. And one thing that I witnessed through, again, whether it's from, from the, the president level, whether it's fire departments and police departments around, whether it's, you know, counties and cities is you have these people and on their lapel, it says, you know, county commissioner, president, whatever it is. And they're collecting their paycheck and they're walking around with their chest, chest puffed. And then you actually get called on. Now it's time to lead. It's your George yeah. Bush moment when they just whispered in your ear in a classroom. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And some did. Some were phenomenal. And I think some, right. ironically, some of the countries that really did well, like Sweden and, and, um, even Florida here, you know, I say Governor DeSantis, I don't love yeah. everything he does, but he yeah. led very well during that. He did. It was very yeah. And he did after, after the last hurricane too. I was very impressed exactly. with how he handled that. Exactly. So you go, you go, okay, beautiful. You earn your lapel pin, you earn your salary. But what I saw was a lot of people that really should never be in those positions absolutely crumble from the top, even through the next election and the next person and, and other areas. So talk to me about the concept of leading through the storm, because to me, you don't really get tested as a leader until you, you don't earn your money until you actually get to one of those storms in the first place. And then you could obviously there's the proactive side, of course, but that's really when you it's like the firefighter actually having to go into the structure fire. A lot of times we're working out, we're training, we're running low level calls. But really what we're paid for are those acute calls where lives are absolutely at stake. So talk to me about the the leadership through the storms element. Okay. Um so I think it was Roy Disney who said when your values are clear, your choices become easy. So, you know, if if you're not sure what you stand for, if you're not, if the why is not clear, cosa nostra, you know, that that um the the purpose, why we have this thing and what we're up to, 
Um, if that's at all fuzzy, you got to now spend time in the storm trying to crystallize that, especially if you have to get it done through other people. So the the clearer you are on, you know, this is why I'm in this role. And this is the outcome and the effect it's that, that I'm trying to achieve. The more you're clear on that, the more you can say, all right, now we need paths to pull this off. And you can invite folks that have hopefully been empowered to, to give you solutions. Um, so clarity of purpose is key. Um, in the Navy SEALs, they say, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. So here comes now the, the bill shows up for how seriously you've taken the training beforehand and you get to see where the, the equipment has been maintained properly and whether the procedures and protocols are in place. So, you know, if we haven't taken it seriously beforehand, then, then I think some of the leaders showcase that in, in the moments of crisis. You know, if you've been playing you know, on the political arena, if you just sort of playing the grab hand and, and win approval game, that doesn't serve you really well when all of a sudden it's time to make decisions. Um, so I, th- I think clarity, I think humility, you, your job as a leader, this is Simon Sinek saying, you know, your job is to, to accomplish the mission. Your job is to go through the people who accomplish the mission. So the culture you've created is also a positive thing, but the leader needs, there needs to be confidence. There needs to be competence, you know, and there needs to be clarity about where we're going. And I think the leader also needs to feel burden the burden of um, modeling how they hope everyone else responds to this. When Zelensky was asked, you know, offered a ride out, and he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. I mean, he's just in a green t-shirt now going, that's not what I'm here. I'm check this out. Selfie boom, right in front of the we're here on the ground for everybody who's saying we're, we've left the, the country, click, this is what it looks like. Signaling to everyone else, this is how leaders act. So you better line up, follow suit. Um, so I think I've we've seen it done well that way. But man, I mean, imagine this, when it's time for the leader to make the call, when, when crap's hitting the fan. For leaders who are playing the blame game during those moments, you, you've lost total control. This is the moment of ownership, of decision-making, of clear communication, of making the complex simple. Here's what we're going to focus on. Here's the next two or three steps. And here's what you guys need to do. I think that that sort of clarity makes people feel like, okay, from the top down, we're safe. We're safe in that there is a plan. For, there, there's hope and there's a path forward. Um and hope, there's there's ingredients of hope. Hope is, is there a way through this storm? Right? Whether it's suicide, you know, if you feel hopeless, there's only so many options that seem to make sense. So how do we make somebody hopeful that they have a path through this storm? And maybe they meet somebody who's been as sad as they are, or felt as overwhelmed as they are, or felt as broken as they are, who is healthy now. Oh, my God. If you could do that, then maybe I can do this, right? So that there is a uh, there's an, a path through this storm. I've got to believe that that I can walk that path. There's an agency component. Do I believe I can actually take those steps? Because if I don't, I think only people like you can take that step. 
then I'm back to hopeless again. And then how badly do I want to get out of the storm? I think that's probably the easiest one, you know? So uh, I think that leaders that can provide hope when all things are going, going poorly. Now I've been talking to folks about leading through the storm and I want to just offer this framework. Okay. Um, And this largely has to do with resilience. And I know you spend a lot of time on, on resilience. We are not always at the point of resilience, of bouncing back, right? Sometimes we are getting ready for a storm. We're preparing for something. There's suck coming and we know it. Now, it could be positive suck. Hey, we're having our first kid or I'm about to start grad school or, you know, it could be a good thing. Um, I'm about uh, I'm going to run a a marathon. But the training is going to kind of suck. All right. In that phase of the storm beforehand, the presilience. What do the great ones say to themselves to get their head right? Because, man, there's all sorts of chatter in our heads at that phase, which is, I don't want to do this. This is going to suck. It's going to be too hard. People like me can't do this. So when those voices are present, that inner critic shows up, we need something that can trump that, that is stronger than that voice. Otherwise, the voice wins and we never start or we're paralyzed with fear. And there's certain battle cries that that kind of emerge in that phase, right? The second phase is you're in the storm and, you know, you're going through chemo. You're, you're going through the divorce. Um, you're working for a toxic boss. You're literally in the firefight or you're, you know, going through, you know, the, the fire. And in those moments, the voices change. Now the voices are, it'd just be easier if I stop. This is too hard. Just give up. It's not working. Nothing I'm doing is right. Whatever those voices are, you need something then. And some of the battle cries there go, you know, go back to the Stoics or or many faith origins. There's a reason why we keep gravitating towards things like this too shall pass. It is what it is. You know, that gives us perspective. It gives us patience. Um, control what you can control. I mean, how often do we tell people when they're losing it or they're getting overwhelmed? Just breathe. Why? Because because you can control that. And we know that's going to help sort of physiologically. But just controlling something right now is important for you. Take the next, just do the next right thing. Just break the big, the big overwhelming thing down to the next step. And how many times, you know, if I can make it to the next meal, if I can make it to the next day, the next treatment, that makes it more bearable. And maybe I can pull that off. And maybe that gives me hope. Um, so there's there's just a lot of a lot of phrases that emerge in the storm that give us perspective or hope, grace sometimes. Faith shows up a lot of times when we're in the storm. People will have verses they go back to, or they'll have wrist tattoos or tattoos somewhere in their body that remind them that when things get hard, don't forget this. You know, just breathe. You are not alone. You are good enough. Shut up that voice that you're hearing. Read this again. And then sometimes we are coming out of the storm and we're trying to put the pieces together or make sense of trauma or... I've just finished up a career and I don't know who I am now. Okay. Well, that's, there's a whole area of science. Matter of fact, I just, I had this book on my, of post-traumatic growth. I love the Tedeschi's work. There's, there's power in what is it that helps some people 
come out of traumatic experiences stronger than when they went in because they tap into this, this new life narrative where they frame it as maybe I can do new things only because I went through what I went through. I can't rewrite the chapters that have been written, but man, I own the pen of this next chapter and it's going to be not that. So as people are going through the storms of life, just the, the good ones and the, the bad ones where the struggle is real. I think it's important for them to figure out what phase am I in? What are the voices that are talking to me, saying to me that are just making the struggle even harder? And can I tap into something that helps me through this? And I had one, I was facing some mental health challenges just over the last year, um, getting overwhelmed and sleep was jacked up, man. I'm waking up at 3.34 every morning in a sweat, moaning like an animal. Sometimes I'd wake up and I was hitting myself in the head because I'd forgotten about, the, it was just exhausting. And I had a battle cry that I heard from my dad in a very different storm when he was going through financial stuff after you know the, the bottom fell out in 2008. I asked him, I said, dad, how, how are you doing during this whole thing? Because he wanted me to focus on other family members. And I said, because I'm thinking, while he's going through this storm, the second big financial dip in their life, it's reasonable for hear, him to hear voices like, you failed again. Now you've brought your kids into it, or you can't recover from this, or you're an embarrassment. Whatever that chatter is, as wrong as it was, I bet it felt very compelling. So I asked him, I said, uh, how are you doing through all this? Where's your head at? And he said, Kevin, all I know how to do is keep showing up. Uh, just keep showing up with ideas and effort and, and uh, an attitude that there might be a path through that. That's all I know how to do through my whole life. That's all I've known how to do. And right now I'm just going to keep showing up. And I thought that phrase is a gift. And sure enough at three 34 in the morning, I'm like, I'm not giving up, man. I, I'm just going to keep showing up attitude, effort, ideas, and maybe there's a path through the storm. And lo and behold, eventually you get some traction. You have a quick win. This, the, all the craziness at 3.34 in the morning isn't accurate. And uh, a new day emerges. So I think there's value maybe in, in folks realizing uh, to hunt for battle cries that remind them of the phase they're in and what the voice needs to hear in order to shut it up. When you deconstruct it, what do you think was the element or some of the large contributing factors to you having that mental health struggle a year ago? Well, I'll tell you this. Um, it's the fear ofs. Because one morning I got up and I said, I've got to sh shine a light on this because this is, I don't know what's going on here. I've never been this unhealthy, like mentally. So I'm on this computer where I'm talking to you on, um, on and I said, what am I afraid of? And I start typing on a, on a um, PowerPoint slide. It's fear of failure. It's fear of embarrassing myself. It's fear of being the leadership guy who can't lead this project or this program. It's fear of not being good enough. I, I created a list of fear ofs. And then I said, having spent some time on, in this area, what am I saying to myself right now that's scaring the crap out of me? What am I listening to? What's the inner monologue? So I, that's the next column. And it's 
you're JV at a varsity game. Um, you're a fraud. You're the imposter in the room. Um, you are going to lose control of your family balance and you're going to lose it during a time you can't because my dad was going through memory care and we had teenage daughters at the time. This is critical time and you're going to lose it and you're going to fall out of balance. May I have a list of all the things that's going to happen. And the last thing I did, so that's what was causing it. It was the scene of the crime is the mind. That debate is what got me to moaning like an animal and not sleeping well. It's the fear ofs. And then I wrote a third column that was sort of the beginning of a breakthrough, I think. And it was what assumptions are in place based on what I just listed right there. The assumptions are, I need to do this all myself. How is that for the lie we often tell ourselves? I'm alone and that's the only way it can be. Um, it's got to be perfect the first time um, that no, will, no one will understand if I'm struggling. Um, they will think less of me if I ask for help. I mean, those are the assumptions that seem to be in place for these first two columns. And I'm reading that and I'm like, wait a second. That's not true at all. I can borrow competence. I can hire people. I can, I can bring in for us. I can borrow confidence. There are people around me who believe in me and I need to not isolate myself. I need to surround myself. Dumber people than me have figured stuff like this out. So maybe there's a, you know, to quote dumb and dumber, you're telling me there's a chance. So the, what got me there was I had isolated myself and I started honoring the fear ofs and the voices. And I, I was not throwing anything back at them that I, I had the potential to. Well, I mean, thank you for sharing that because I mean, there's there's so many different pieces of that pie chart that contribute to people's struggles, and it might be childhood trauma is a huge one that's not really discussed very much in the uniform professions. Obviously, what we see, what we do, sleep deprivation, you name it. But I'm I can relate to what you're talking about very much so because I took the leap of faith four years ago, and my entire ability to support my family rests on what we're doing now and then the occasional book that I can squeeze out of my tiny brain, which I'm working on myself. In that. Oh, it's, yeah, it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying because everything that you've been told is, you know, a, a uh, stable job. You just kind of crumpled that up, threw it in the rubbish and like, yeah, I'm just going to wing it. <laughs> so that comes with imposter syndrome, fear. And like you said, you know, when you, when I'm writing, Oh, that shit. But that's okay. This is draft one. It's not supposed yeah. to be good. It's just get yeah. It on Imagine the page. if the voice was yeah. It's got to be perfect the the first time I write it, and I'm writing it, and I'm like, it's shit. What's wrong with me? That's the natural next evolution. Why can't I write as good as these other guys? Well, they don't write like that right off the bat. That assumption is flawed. Yeah, I saw on Instagram though. This guy writes it once, and then he publishes it and makes millions. And he lives in, in an island mansion. And he's got a Ferrari. Wow! Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, and I bet I bet he filmed that commercial in the first take too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. With his smoking hot porn yeah, star wife. <laughs> yeah. Right. I've right. never heard of this guy yet. He <laughs> makes money with no no problem. <laughs> well, I want to hit one topic. I want to get to the Medal of Honor um, yeah. story. If you if you're good with time, still. You bet. Beautiful. But one thing I think I need to ask you, my James Gearing's personal opinion, I have had some incredible leaders and mentors in my life. And I don't see those in British prime ministers. I don't see those in American presidents. But there's hope. 
there have been some amazing leaders in our country's past, and I think that there can be again. But I think there are, you know, things that have devolved where there's a lot of corruption and you've basically got to be, you know, a millionaire to even compete, you know, in, yeah. in this this environment. So you talked about the piece of paper right in the next chapter with you know, you're holding the pen. If you could be king for a day, what would it what would we need to do to actually change the system so that we could actually put the best leaders or some of the best leaders back in these positions, whether it's, you know, the absolute tip top, whether it's counties or even fire departments, but especially focusing on the president side yeah. mm -hmm. so that we can just get the right people that rather than divide during, for example, a pandemic, it pulls us together. We have a common enemy. You know, this thing is killing our people as is obesity, as is cancer, as is suicide. What do we need to do to, to, to make America great again, to actually put the right people at the helm. Yeah. So you say, you know, uh, there's, there's a value in a common enemy, you know, as soon as the, the t twin towers got hit, America came together pretty quick, you know, all of a sudden politics and are you a Yankee or a Southerner or do you like Dallas Cowboys, the Washington Redskins, all that, all that stuff came to, together because the tribe cut across all that. So I think in you know in a perfect day that that it, the independent party that that sort of blended a, a re, that a reasonable adult could sort of say I think there's goodness in both sides and I'd like to invite you here and we'll learn in this process too but we're going to move away from the extremes because that's just where anger and and there there's it's non-value added in the extremes. And we get into this confirmation bias kind of thing where we ignore information that competes with our interests. Um, so I think that alternative party would need to put somebody forward that people undeniably said their hearts are in the right place. They're not polluted by the game, by the system. Matter, matter of fact, the game is the common enemy. The Constitution is the thing that they're just bringing to the table. I think somebody like that, that's got to be charismatic and has to be appealing and all that. Um, that, to, to me, that's in the short term anyway, that seems how we break down the logjam between the two extremes that have now just started making money by blaming the other party. And hell yeah, it's not them and those. And um, just a reason balanced approach. So I think that might be a step in in the right direction and in you know in organizations i see i think we do have there are examples especially in in organizations of great leadership and some of the things that bubble to the top and it's nothing new i mean jim collins and good to great highlighted you know this this humility the power of trust the power of here i will tell you this when i do my workshops um, I will ask people and they can vote on their, their phone. So I collect data and I've probably asked the question 15,000 times now. If somebody's going to successfully lead you, someone as impressive as you, by God, they had better blank. So I just want what's on the tip of your brain, tip of your heart these days, as far as you better get this right if you're going to lead somebody like me. So you get the the answer to the leadership test. What are people hungry for? And the cool thing is, the answers are the same no matter who I'm talking to, lowest level to the highest level, military, non-military, doesn't matter. 
The number one thing people want is you lead by example. That's the number one thing. It's the most frequently one, uh, frequently stated one, and it's the most important one. The second most common one is um, you better get the, uh, you better demonstrate you care the way you should, and you demonstrate how you talk to and about the people you are leading. Um, do I perceive that your heart is in the right place when you demonstrate vulnerability? And imperfection, you signal to us you care because you're willing to put yourself out there like that. When you admit you are made a mistake or you are wrong, you signal to us that you care. When you know our story and you sincerely listen to us, you signal to you. So that's the second most important thing behind lead by example. The third most important thing is if you're going to lead me, I need you to be competent the way a leader should be competent. You need to know what you should know. Right. And you're always a student of your craft. You're not a master of your craft. You're a student of your craft, which may require you to humbly ask people to teach you stuff. Right. But part of competence is also, I need you to make the decisions that fall to you and own them. And I need you to also be able to effectively communicate what the deal is, what the expectations are. So those, those are the three primary things people say they want from their leaders. And I think if if we get leaders who who model and demonstrate that, that uh, it would be a breath of fresh air in the political arena. But if you look at the leaders who are just killing it right now, typically they're those humble people who just who do that. And I'm, I run into them a lot. So I'm encouraged that they're there. They just don't make front page of the newspaper sometimes. There's one single person in my entire time in the US, which is 20 years now, that I've actually been impressed by. And she's coming on the podcast. I've been saying this, people listening. Good. So James, you've heard this yeah. like two years. Yes, I know it's been a long time. It's coming. But Tulsi Gabbard, she is, you know, she's a not even a vet. She's military, still active yep. duty in the National yep. Guard. She's, yep. She is in great shape. She, you know, she, she just, to me, is the kind of person that we need. Now, I don't know if she's going to be able to do it. And, you know, again, I don't know if there's a, dark side of Tulsi that no one's seen and she's actually gonna you know kill all I bet, English I people bet in her America humility will <laughs> she she will I bet you anything she would humbly share with you all the things she's working on for herself which only validates why she does so well yeah exactly so she's someone I'm actually excited about and it's not politics it's leadership whether she makes that particular seat or whether it's something else to me, in that arena, that's what we need. Her or someone like her, male, female, whatever, you know, avatar they are, that kind of human being. Uh, yeah, I, I can give you a, a list of folks that I, I will give you a list of folks that that would should make it on your podcast because they're just they they live it um, in a way that you, you sit there and you go, OK, that's what I want to align with. Beautiful. Well, I'll get to that question because I know you probably know it's coming. Um, all right. Well, then I really want to make sure that we spend some time with the Medal of Honor side. So talk to me about the museum itself. I mean, I've had people on the show who um, I believe I have Medal of Honor winners here. I'm, I'm embarrassed if I don't know who it is, but I've had, you know, people like Major James Capers as well, who, you know, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the, the push is to try and get him recognized. And I'm not right. sure if race right. was a, a part of that particular story yeah. or not. It's always a good question to ask. So just, you know, I'd love to hear your experience. You're in the Air Force on the academic side. You you find yourself in this new arena. Talk to me about the the establishment itself and then the role that you you have within that. So so the the vision is to create a world where everyone um, answers the call to live with live and lead 
with honor. Um, and, and there are certain values ascribed to the Medal of Honor. So this is the nation's highest award for valor in combat. So the co- combat is the context in which this, these behaviors were demonstrated. But the whole purpose of the museum is to take the values and say, okay, what from that story, you know, what values were showcased in that in the story of that recipient and how can that be applied to your life? That's the second bridge that has to be built because it is not a military museum. It is a values museum. Let's go here and you will see people, human beings, admit, self-admitted, ordinary people who in the moment did something extraordinary that brought to life courage, sacrifice, commitment, integrity. And beyond that, often after they earn the medal, citizenship and patriotism was all wrapped into that. So we're going to take those six values and honor those through the stories of these, these people. And what's it, you want to hear something interesting of the uh, over 30, the 40 million people plus have served in the the, uh, American military of the 40 million people, just over 3,500 have earned this medal. And once you take out the civil war, which was the vast majority of them, because the standards were a little bit different back then, it's a very, very small percentage of these people have served. Um, 19 people have earned the medal of honor twice for, for different events. You know, so you talk about somebody who, who demonstrates what is possible when, when the moment shows up, they just act in a way that, that brings these values to life. So in Arlington, Texas, right near Dallas Cowboys Stadium and Globe Life, Texas Rangers Stadium, is this beautiful, huge, iconic museum that is being built right now. It'll Doors will open in the beginning of 2025 um, that will spotlight the, uh, the actions of these amazing Americans um, that demonstrated these values. So in that... I was asked to help stand up an element that will also be co-located in in the museum, which is the Medal of Honor Institute or a leadership institute. And our job is to basically build the second bridge is how do those values show up in your life? Talk about times you won't, you won't have to throw yourself on a grenade on a rooftop in Fallujah, but maybe talking to Kyle Carpenter who did and survived it this humble, amazing human being, just to, you want to spend your time around Kyle Carpenter. By the way, he wrote an ama- he wrote a fantastic book and needs to be on your podcast. He'd be amazing. Um, and his book is called You Are Worth It. But to hear Kyle's story and to talk to Kyle, it reminds you maybe of how you too can be courageous in your own life, whatever sort of the, the symbolic grenade is um, there. What's it look like to sacrifice for the people you love in your life? And uh, what are the what are the insights there? So th- the whole point of the Institute is to help inspire, equip, and connect people around the values associated with the Medal of Honor. And those kids may be, or, or those people may be youth, K through 12. How do we offer this in a way that meets them where they're at? Because, um, you know, K through 12, a lot of them, aren't ready to hear the wartime, you know, the, the combat context, but man, they, they have to be courageous. 
they have to demonstrate commitment. They need to learn about integrity. So there's a youth component. There's an adult component, obviously, where we'll invite folks to explore this and how this shows up in their work and their life. And then we're going to have a center for the elevation of honor, which is thought leadership. Let's bring together folks who just are in the trenches trying to identify the best practices and the ways we can build habits of excellence in anything related to honor, which would include resilience and grit. And what's what's the idea of duty look like these days? Um, what is it that causes people to go above and beyond what is required of them? You know, what does citizenship look like in 2023? And how do we dial that up? So there's three different centers within the Institute, one focused on K through 12, one focused on uh, adults, and one focused on sort of thought leadership, but all of them designed to inspire, equip, and connect people around the values of the leader uh, of the Medal of Honor. Beautiful. You said Arlington, Texas, 2025. 2025. Now, the, the Institute we're trying to get, or we're trying, we're getting things up and running right now. We want to have some momentum. So actually in May, in about five weeks, we are having our first cohort of our flagship leadership development experience called Leading in the Moment. And we've got a cohort of 22 rising executives. You know, these are C-suite potential folks that are force multipliers in their organizations from across different industries. Um, We've got educators, we've got uh, bankers, we've got people in the airline industry, and we've got people in the entertainment industry. We got people from all different uh, um, industries that will be coming together for three and a half days and just diving into this. And what's cool about our programs is you're going to get to do it alongside Medal of Honor recipients. So we're going to have three recipients that that spend some time with the cohort to say, "Hey, let me tell you my story. Here's what I've learned, and let's talk about how this applies in your life." It sounds absolutely amazing. Now, you mentioned Kyle. That's someone who I'm, I'm fully aware of, and I would love to to try and get him on if you're able to help me connect He's a with blessing, him. man. He's A lot of people are trying to get him, so that's the unfortunate thing is he's, he's high demand for exactly the right reason. He's just a great human being trying to get it right, and humility is his wheelhouse. And you're always better after spending time with Kyle Carpenter. It sounds absolutely amazing. I want to just, I know when we, we spoke before, um, you touched on some of these stories. We've got Medal of Honor recipients that are still alive, that are still able to tell their story, especially in this amazing technological age we're in now where you can do podcasts and write books very easily. Talk to me about some of the, the stories that really struck you of some of the people that we are no longer with us. Oh, gosh. Um, and I'm just, I mean, there's there's 65 living, you know, and we've just added um one in the last couple months that was one of those honor denied for time. He was African-American that his package got kind of lost two times. So for whatever reason that was, he has now been rightfully honored. So, um, but one of the ones that sticks with me is uh, Tibor Rubin and R-U-B-I-N. And in World War II, uh, he was a Hungarian Jew that was in a concentration camp and he was, I think 17 at the time. And just because of fate or luck or whatever you believe in, he survived and was liberated by the Americans at this, at this camp. And he swore on this day. um, If I ever go to America, if I can ever become an American, I will become a GI Joe. So as luck would have it, he emigrates to to the United States, 
And with very, very broken English, he is able to, as the Korean War is starting up, join the American military and goes in the army. And he is so proud and so excited. And he gets sent over to Korea and his first combat unit, his sergeant is a raging anti-Semite. And it has followed him here. So even within this beautifully, you know, imperfect nation in our, our armed forces, he finds himself there and they are in combat. So as they keep going on, this sergeant keeps sending this Jew on the death missions because he wants this guy out of his unit. So he sends him on just sort of unrecoverable, um, the, the worst kind of, of missions. And he keeps coming back. He keeps surviving them, driving this guy nuts. And we're, there, there is, uh, there's argument that he was written up four times for the Medal of Honor. Some of those may have been for different scenarios. So he was given many opportunities to do things worthy of the Medal of Honor. Uh, but in one case, uh, they were on a on a hilltop, and the Chinese army's just advancing. And here they come, you know, and uh, and they're going to they need to evacuate. Well, the sergeant says, "Reuben, you're going to stay behind. We put all sorts of uh, um, weapons in the foxholes. You just hold down the fort until we can evacuate safely, and then we'll come back and get you." Well, they leave. Night's falling. Here come the the Chinese army, and this guy's up there by himself. And I think it, God, I think it was for 12 hours or 24 hours. He's running from foxhole to foxhole, firing and, and throwing grenades and, and fighting these guys off. I think kills hundreds of, uh, um, of Chinese soldiers. Um, and then he realizes the next day, nobody's coming to get me. So he event, eventually leaves tracks down his unit you can imagine his sergeant is just going insane now that this guy has shown up again um they go back and scout and realize what he did right so they've got that information so as the unit progresses i think it was a couple months later they're captured and they're put into another prisoner camp his second one in his life and because he's hungarian they they offer to let him go as long as he goes back to hungary and he says, no, he goes, I know, I know what it takes to survive in this. And I'm not leaving my brothers. And he voluntarily stayed in a prisoner war camp and rendered aid and provided medical treatment because they weren't giving any medical treatment. He provided the best he could. He provided comfort and optimism. And that alone could have been a Medal of Honor thing. But add that on top of the thing he just did on the Hill. Um, if you have an opportunity to go to the Medal of Honor Society's webpage and you can search all sorts of uh, recipient videos. His video is just a national treasure because they, before he passed away, obviously he did this interview and uh, it's the beauty of America because you've got, you know, you've got somebody who immigrated into the United States, bought into the spirit of America and it did not meet him where his heart was. And he gets this guy and he still buys into it and brings the best of the human spirit to the situation. And we finally, you know, honor him. So it's compassion meets valor meets courage meets citizenship and patriotism. It's just an amazing story. And that's one of, you know, thousands. Well, I mean, firstly, thank you because that, was one of thousands that need to be heard because he's, we've lost these men and women now. Um, and uh, it reminds me as well of talking to DJ Vanus. When I watched the documentary he was originally in, 
they talked about it wasn't until after World War One, and we'd had Native American soldiers in our you know military since you know we basically took the land from them, and um, then they were finally made Americans, like between World War One and World War Two. So and then what happened? Yeah. And then, you know, they became, you know, the, I think the, the highest serving of all the, the different races, if go. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. How, isn't that amazing that percentage wise, they are the highest serving sort of per capita, despite how they had been treated by the same nation beforehand. It's just this, this buying into the, the tribe and the warrior and, uh, and that needs to be honored. So I'm so glad DJ's able to, to share that. Yeah, no, it was, it was incredible. But I think it also highlights because they said, well, this is our country, you know, yeah. and that's what they're fighting for. And I think it's <laughs> yeah, the same with a lot of these immigrants, and I'm, I'm one of them, is not all. Some people come in and bitch and whine and hang their original country's flag from their flat there everywhere. But I think a lot of people, they understand the American dream sometimes more than people that were born here. And it's, that's so, you know, it's, it's just a reminder when you hear some of these amazing immigrant stories, not mine, mine's not amazing, but you hear, you know, some like you just told us, this is, these are people that truly understand that why their, their, their mission is clear in their mind. And that is that this is a beautiful country. And when it's threatened, whether it's military or whether it's, you know, corruption in a leadership position, they want to make it better. They're not trying to, to bitch and whine. They're, they're bringing problems to the forefront and saying, we need to fix this. I tell you, when I feel most proud of this country um, and, and the spirit of America, when I take an Uber ride, I can't tell you how many Uber drivers I've talked to. Hey, tell me your story. Where's that accent from? And they're, and they're immigrants who came over and they just, you know, my, again, my assumptions go here. I'm like, so is this primary job or side hustle? They're like, oh, I only do this so that I can pay for my the rental properties that I've got. And I've put my kids through these schools. I came to America and I, I'm i all in. And I I bring my kids back to our, our country of origin to show them what could have been if America did not make this available. I mean, they they are proud and hardworking. And it's just, it reminds me of, you know, the, the beautiful melting pot that makes this country and its potential great. Yeah, that we've always been. It's funny, even with the UK, yeah. you go to London. Have you ever seen the, the film uh, Love Actually? Yeah, right. So, so it opens with Heathrow Airport. And I remember even as a young, young child going there and it's, you know, African dress and Indian and all these different places because this is, that's actually what England is now. And I mean, right. we, and my forefathers did some terrible things and colonized countries and mm -hmm. did some, you know, horrific things in those nations. Same, same. Sure. But the plus side of that is we have such a beautifully diverse country and that is America, that is the UK, that is so many places. And so when people get in the position and they preach this very hateful anti-immigrant rhetoric, and I'm not condoning you know, horrible things that happen at borders, but we're negating the very fabric that this country was built on. And it's funny because with the the Uber, my wife kind of groans because I'll I'll chat to every single sure. one of them. In fact, one, even this gentleman was was uh, American born, but he was from San Francisco, and we were talking so in depth that we were at the parking you know, lot outside where she lives and Uber contacted him and us to make sure we weren't being murdered because we were sitting there for so long. But it's it. I mean, we are surrounded by incredible people. And most of us, whether we were born here, whether we came here, most of us adore this country. And I don't think yeah. you hear that message enough. And I, I wish you asked, you know, one thing that I would change if, if I were 
you know, in charge for a day. I would love for those who immigrated here, like you said, that two flags get displayed, but one is bigger than the other. If you are here, part of this, that the American flag is the one that proudly gets displayed. And then the smaller one is, I happen to also have origins here and I have family there. This is part of my story, but I am, you know, that America is us together. And because when you flip that, it feels like, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm a renter here. No, man, you, you're part owner. Um, but you know, you gotta, you gotta buy into the ownership of what we're up to. And it's, it's, it's beautifully imperfect. And there are many people who experience, you know, the, the dark side of, of a society and a culture and all, and, and there's justice and fairness and equity issues and all that. And I've, I've been blessed that haven't, I haven't been, you know, had to walk that walk, but I think we walk it better when we do it together and focused on the big flag America. And what's been sacrificed to to give us that opportunity? Absolutely, that's one thing I said to to DJ. Is again through my eyes. One thing I realized through this journey is if you, for example, look at slavery, the entire white race did not benefit from slavery. If you look at the UK when we were slaving the British, the England was at its one of its deepest um, periods of poverty in British history. Mm. So we have this tar and feather mentality when it comes to these issues. And yeah. as long as you keep pigeonholing yourself, oh, it's black or white or this or that, right. yeah. there's only one truth. In pretty much every element of tyranny, there's a group, a small group of people profiting off the masses. And the, the, the real spiritual awakening is once we realize that and the rest of us are all together, that's when we'll actually finally flip this around. But if we keep allowing ourselves to be divided, as one of my guests talked about, you know, what happens when you fight amongst yourselves? The people in the castle looking over the walls, they're happy because you're not looking at the castle anymore. Yeah, right. That's what we've got to get to. And, you know, when we talk about it's got to be safe to have the, the discussions and there's – um uh, this would be a great author if uh, a person I have on your podcast, if he had not passed away. But um, uh, there's there's an author from Harvard who talks about um, the, something different than perspective taking. Right. We need to take somebody else's perspective or try to put ourselves in their shoes. That's an important thing. But he focused on something called perspective giving, which is when you share with me your frustrations or what it's like or, or your journey. Just the fact that I say, let me say back to you what I heard. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not even going to say whether I agree with it or not, but I want you to feel heard. And let's strip the emotions out. But let me tell you back what what you said and clarify where I missed the mark, because that's our point where we can move forward. You feel heard and gotten as opposed to, you know, you you should trying to share what it's like from your perspective. And I keep telling you why that's stupid. And let me tell you what's my perspective. We just keep missing each other. So I think perspective giving is just, uh, we honor each other by saying, it sounds like you're trying to tell me this. Is that right? I think that works pretty well in a marriage too. Because if you don't feel gotten, you don't feel appreciated and we got problems. Absolutely. Right? I learned that as a man, you can't fix some things you have to listen and be there yeah. and hold hands and hug and not try and offer a solution when you're a male and a firefighter that your job is to fix things yeah, yeah <laughs> it right. becomes really hard just to bite your tongue and just simply be there and say i'm so sorry yeah yeah 
but it's a, you know, there's a, our author named Michael Bungay Stanier. He's the, he's the number one voice in coaching, executive coaching these days. And he said, we all have an advice monster that we love to let out of the cage. It's in a cage. And as soon as somebody starts telling us what they're upset about or what they're angry about, we just let that advice monster go. And I know as a husband, I do that a lot of times when that's not what she's asking for. And his, his call to action, which again is a humility request. He said, just be curious 30 seconds longer, man. Just keep the advice monster in the cage a little bit longer. And I think the heart of curiosity, sincere curiosity can go a long way toward pulling people together and eliminating some of the divide. I sincerely want to understand why this is important to you or what you're trying to say, because I think I'm missing it. Boy, that's that's not a bad thing. Absolutely not. Just doing this podcast has made me have to shut the hell up and listen. And I think it's a great skill to take out of this you know, world I found myself in now because I... I notice I just listen more and I take a beat, you know, I'm not, I was never someone that would snap back, but I mean, I certainly stuck my foot in my mouth more times than I care to remember. So by having this and just, you know, waiting, cause I mean, I don't know if someone's even going to finish a train of thought. So I have to wait and see if someone's done and it's an incredible skill. And you realize that, you know, we do, we, we talk over each other so much. I find that, you know, as a recipient, even with my son, I have to catch him like, Hey, I wasn't finished talking yet, but that's yeah. how culturally we do that. We, oh, but, but, but I'll forget it if I don't say it now, <laughs> right. write it down. That's what I do. That's what we've done this last two hours, write it down and wait your turn. And you'd be amazed that maybe they'll actually answer what you were going to ask anyway, if you just gave it a moment. Right. Well, you're very good at this. And <laughs> you seriously, I mean, I've, I've done a number of these and you, you come from a place of sincere curiosity and you are willing in a way I haven't heard before to explore topics and nuances that, that take in a very personal direction. So I, I applaud that and it makes it fun for me too. Well, I appreciate it. But again, I'm I'm curious because I'm interviewing people that are, you know, are fascinating and are leaders in their field. And that's the point is, you know, as you talked about earlier about always being a student, that is it. You know, I, I'm in the fire service in this now, um, you know, and there are truly masters of their craft, but they, you ask them, no, I'm still a student. And that's why they're the master, you know, to everyone else that doesn't know as much. So. There's a, I've got a dear friend who's at the Coast Guard Academy and he tells a story about, um, uh, it might be Admiral Loy, but former commandant of the Coast Guard as he was coming up through the ranks to eventually be the commandant, which is the highest position in the Coast Guard. He had a sign over his door that said, the only non-training billet in the Coast Guard is the commandant. Right. Signaling that even somebody he was on his way up, even even somebody like me um, is still a student. And then he became the commandant and he changed the sign. There are no non-training billets in the Coast Guard. Love it. Humility again. Right. <laughs> Beautiful. Well, we've been talking for, God, two and a half hours already. I'd, <laughs> love, I'd love to throw some closing questions at you if you've got time. Well, let's do it. I'm, I'm assuming you're going to edit this down so that people don't have to listen to me for two and a half hours. No, no. It's just funny. People always say that. I don't because firstly, the same way as time flies when we've been talking, I would yeah. hope that it was the same listening. I mean, I listen to, I mean, Joe Rogan's obviously notorious for his long ones. And, you know, yeah. if it's an engaging conversation, it flies by. So the only editing yeah, I do it. is just for the sound itself, just to clean up if there's any background noise. All right. Well, then the first question, and you touched on a couple already in this conversation, but is there, are there a, excuse me, is there a book or are there books that you love to recommend? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. 
So I'll throw out two. Um, one is uh, The Daily Stoic by uh, Ryan Holiday. I'm a, I'm a fan of Ryan Holiday's. And through him, I've become a fan of the Stoic mindset. Um, I don't know if you're familiar. It's not a religion. It's, you know, we're going back to, to Marcus Aurelius and, and Socrates, or, uh, um, Aristotle and, you know, a lot of the ancients, but there's a reason why his journal, his meditations just to himself, he's just talking to himself have been on the bedside of, you know, presidents and CEOs and world leaders for, you know, hundreds of years since he wrote them thousands of years ago. So Ryan Holiday introduces us to that. And if you have, if we have a moment since, Time is ours. One of the Stoic philosophy uh, principles is um, is what's called memento mori, which is just uh, realize that you will die, right? Uh, remember, you will die, and you don't have you don't die once. You're dying every day. So therefore, what are you doing with the precious resource of time? So Seneca says it's not that we don't have enough time; we just don't use it very well. So. If you go on now, uh, Ryan's website, Daily Stoic, has a has a um, place where you can buy stuff, but there are other places to buy this. And it's your week or your life in weeks calendar. Have you heard about this? Um, I think I, I it sounds familiar. So you're basically giving yourself a countdown to your perpetual yeah, I'm gonna show. I'm going to show you what mine looks like. Um, so I'm getting it off my whiteboard. My my wife hates this thing. And my kids are like, <laughs> why would you have this? And I'm like, whether you like it or hate it, it doesn't matter. Sort of, it's sort of good that you do have. So my, mine looks like this. So I'm holding up this big sheet of paper. It's oversized parchment paper, but it asks you, and at least where I bought this one, do you think you'll live till 85 or a hundred? Let's just put a, an end on that. Well, you know, based on my dad and when, you know, memory care showed up and all that, I said, all right, let's put 85. And I said, how old are you now? I said, all right, I'm 50. I'm going to be 54 soon. So 53 and a half. So it sends you. So each one of these rows is 52 little boxes. So each box is a week, or you could say a weekend. Um, so you'll see that it's broken up into chunks of 10. So, you know, now 10, 20, 30, there's my 40s right there. I'm in the 50s. I'm past 50s. So all of these are blocked out. And you're like, holy crap. That's a lot of the boxes are already black. I can't get those back. And then I went and I said, okay, now I'm further in the year. So I had to put a, back, a blacked out over here, which signals where I'm at right now. And I've started filling in the weeks after that. And then I went down and I put a little mark on this one right here, which is when my youngest daughter goes to college. So that now represents all those white boxes that need to be filled in represent how many weekends I've got left or weeks I've got left. Are they, were they worth it? Did I spend that week? Well, I either put a black dot or a blue dot in there. Did I make memories? Did I add value to somebody's life? Did I, you know, and the, my wife hates this thing. And I said, whether you love it or hate it, you got to fill in the box. You got to fill in the dot. That's the point is it just puts this urgency on the moment. So the daily stoic touches on that among other concepts, control what you can control. You, um, and he's got a number of other books, Courage is Calling. So I'll start with um, The Daily Stoic. It's a great point of entry to, to just sort of the Stoic mindset. And one of the other books that I'll throw out to you is one called Culture by Design. Okay. And this is David Friedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. And what I like about this is 
you as the leader of the culture, whatever that level of tribe is, you define what do you want this tribe to be like? What are the, the phrases and the behaviors? It's very behavior-based. We do stuff like this here. And it offers a way to crystallize that so it's very easy to carry around that language and to, to ritualize it into your culture. And it just becomes that, that natural language that, um, that allows us to hold each other accountable to, you know, to what we really do around here. And I, I just, um, to me, it, uh, I mean, some of the things are um, be present, be consistent, communicate, have fun. There's, there's just so, so many different ways to approach it but it drives the behavior associated with the values in a way that I've not seen before. So I think that's a winner. Beautiful. Well, thank you. Obviously, The Daily Stoic has been mentioned before. I actually listened to part of your interview on, on Ryan's show as well. Um, but then The Culture by Design, I've never heard before. So that's another great addition to the immense Good. book list that, I bet. <laughs> that's, that's I developed bet. here. I haven't written it down, but it's there for people to listen. I can't, I'm going to throw out one more just really quickly Please. that you have not had on your list before. I know it. Ready? Man, this this got handed to me at, at a workshop I was doing, and it was amazing. It's the little blue book from Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not an alcoholic. I have not been. Um, but somebody who came up who was a recovering addict, he said, I hear how you've struggled with your faith. Um, and I hear that you, the way that you focus on just sort of this, this relentless self-assessment, um, as part of something that you need to own to be better. He goes, I think you may get something out of this. This is a fascinating book and it is a life lessons book and a sort of guideline. And you don't have to be an alcoholic in order to see that. So, uh, the Alcoholics Anonymous blue book, there you go. Beautiful. Has anybody ever said that one before? They have. And it's funny because I actually bought myself a copy as well. I haven't read uh, it yet, but I've had a lot of people that have, you know, had amazing um, progress through the, the 12 steps. I even watched a documentary on the on the founder as well, which is fascinating. But yeah, I mean, this it is, is it. It's not, it's, you know, you're, you're identifying the nucleus of your addiction, but that's through growth and you talked about you know the the um post-traumatic growth is basically what you're you're fostering through this so obviously your your unhealthy coping mechanism may have been alcohol but it may have been a thousand other things and those same lessons can apply to anything that you've been through absolutely oh and number step number four in the 12 steps make a searching and fearless moral inventory of yourself what a great phrase that is a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Um, well, I'm, I'm bummed. I thought I was going to be the first one to bring that to you. <laughs> but when when the guy recommended it to me and he tried to explain why it would work, I'm like, I think this is. So I ordered it while we were talking. You know, I said, I want to make sure you see that I'm taking this seriously. But I had to call my wife and go, hey, something going to show up in the mail that you may be concerned about. It's let me let me tell you why it's coming. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it makes perfect sense. And it's, you know, I mean, we're talking about, I think it was the 50s, I think, when it was originally Yeah, developed. the language right. is a little bit yeah. dated, but uh, you have to just see through that, put it in perspective. But I mean, that says that the, that wisdom has lasted for 70 years because it's still working today. So obviously, it stood the test of time and pretty, pretty interesting change in time from the 1950s America to where we are now. So Yeah, interesting. But you to lay the principles and the solutions over the top of today, 
I think it still stands. People are still flawed in the same way. Absolutely. All right. Well, then that's the book side. What about movies and or documentaries? Um, gosh, you know, uh, movie. I have. I'll throw a couple weird ones out there, and they're not necessarily you know leadership movies or personal development movies. Um, fascinating one since we're having a conversation or that the world is having a conversation about artificial intelligence these days, ex machina. Um, uh, just, I thought it was a clever movie. It was very different than usually the the recipes we're seeing over and over again these days, but I thought that was a provocative movie that uh, makes you wonder, are we getting pretty close to that, that transition point where uh, we may lose control of what we're creating? Yeah, that was a great film, beautifully shot as well. Yeah, yeah. All right, and any documentaries that you love? Um, gosh, you know, I'm obviously deep into uh, in the Medal of Honor stuff right now, and there is a book. Or I'm sorry, there there's a movie. It's not necessarily a documentary, although it does capture very realistically an event that generated two Medal of Honor recipients, and the movie is called The Outpost. And it is probably one of the most realistic, just deploy how how deployed folks talk to each other, and it is the intensity is almost Saving Private Ryan kind of intensity, but it is based on the real event. And matter of fact, they even had somebody from the unit who was an actor there, and a number of the people from the unit who were advisors in this. So it's pretty much the thing. And I've gotten to know one of the Medal of Honor recipients that was present at this and he's like yeah this was it was tough to shoot um because it brought back so much but it's based on a book called um the uh, red platoon okay by uh clint romache he was the medal of honor recipient beautiful but the movie if you watch the movie and then you read the book it makes the 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 book brings in a lot more of the emotion, but the movie was really powerful. I've seen that pop up on my Netflix, but you know, there's a lot it's, of terrible war films out there too. So I'm glad that you were able to. No, kind of this get me is, to hone this is one buckle up because I can tell you it's it's hard to believe what they pulled off, um, and your your hair is just sort of blown back for two hours. Brilliant. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Well, speaking of amazing people, you talked about Kyle. Is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? Well, throw out another Medal of Honor recipient who's just a, a, an amazingly humble guy. His story is phenomenal, as they all are. Um, and his name is Britt Slabinski, former Navy SEAL, um, man chief petty officer, um, and just somebody who's been tested by fire a million times and was in a very, very tough moment and did amazing things, but his insight, just his insights from that experience are pretty, are really powerful. So Brett Slabinski is one of, I've just been blessed to be around him and, and hear him explore some of these topics and he can dive into the leadership thing in a powerful way too. Fantastic. All right. Well then we'll work on trying to get him on next then if you can help. You bet. Thank you so Happy much. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find all the, the different things that we talked about today and yourself online, what do you do to decompress? 
I, I work more than I should because, uh, you know, as I, as I check things off, I'm like, okay, I've, I've got some breathing room now. Um, Mike, I, I do, I work out when I'm not traveling. When I do travel, I, I try to work out as well. Um, I have a teenage daughter that pushes me with regard to reading. Like she'll finish a book. And she's like, all right, you got to read this book so that you and I can talk about it. So, um, so there have been some, some great books at her recommendation. The, um, so there's the family thing. I'm, I'm a water guy too. Doggone it. I love the water. I miss the water. I grew up on an Island. So water is medicine for me. I just don't get back to it as much as I want. So when I go back home down to South Florida, I'm like, Hey, I love you guys, but I'm going to love you while we're walking on the beach or I'm going to love you when we're out on the boat. Cause I need that. So if to decompress when the time comes in the near future that my wife and I maybe get a second place or, or relocate, there's going to be water close by. Of all the books that your daughter got you to read, what's one that really jumps out that was completely out of your wheelhouse, but yep. blew you away anyway? Done. The book thief. Done. That's it. The book thief. A, a really clever. You, If you tried on The Book Thief and it was made into a movie, don't watch the movie, what, read the book first. You got to trust yourself for like the first 30 pages because you're going to go like, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know who's talking or what this is. You just got to grind that out. And then all of a sudden you go, I get it. Okay, I see what they're doing. And it's really clever. It's brilliant. And at the end, it's emotional. At the end, I finished it while I was sitting in a gate at an airport. My flight had gotten delayed. And it was during COVID. So we all had masks on. I'm reading the last six pages in a packed gate at the airport. And I'm crying so hard but trying not to make any noises that I'm making even more noises. Cause I'm now <laughs> right doing that. I had to change masks because it was just, so, my mask was so wet with snot and tears, but it was one of those things. Even my daughter who is just wise beyond her years at, uh, at 16, she said it had to be this sad in order to honor the story. You know, it just, it needed to do this. And, um, she, and she was right, but, uh, but it was, I finished it and I said, doggone it. I think I thought the kite runner was one of my favorite books. I love that book. I said this, this one beat it hands down. So uh, it's, but you got to give yourself some grace on the first 30 pages and then you'll start getting your stride. There's a book called Birdsong by, I think it's Sebastian Folks. And I read that while I was living in Australia for a few months and again, mind blowing. It's it's kind of a love story, but it's also set in World War One. Mm -hmm. And I could not put that book down. The moment I was done at work and was you know on the bus, I had the thing open again. Same thing. Yeah. Very very few books have really moved me. I'm not the the best reader. I kind of get distracted yeah. very easily. But that same, same. that just dragged me right in. So I'm, I'm like you. I probably like you. I tend to read a lot of leadership books and development books, and you know. So every once in a while, she's like, enough of that. You got to do this. So the one she just had me read was uh, All the Light We Cannot See. And it was a World War II book. Um, a lot easy, a lot faster to read. Um, a great story. Again, the writing was just beautiful and and vivid. And the characters were, were powerful. So I give that one big thumbs up. All the Light We Cannot See. But Book Thief is going to win out of those two. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I'm I'm trying to write mine at the moment, but I might have to pause and read some good fiction before I get back to yeah, writing mine. Yeah, it is a it's a pivot, isn't it? <laughs>
Beautiful. Well, we've talked about so much. Um, firstly, where can people find your actual, your own consulting firm? So I'm at uh, uh, Basic. My, my last name is spelled B-A-S-I-K, insight.com. So uh, you'll just, it'll just be an introduction to me and a little bit about my, my philosophy and whatnot. But more importantly, the Medal of Honor Museum and the Institute can be found at, um, I want to make sure that I give you the uh, mohmuseum.org. .org, that's the important thing there. mohmuseum.org. And you'll see just sort of what the spirit of this is. You can search by uh, um, recipients and get some of the stories there. You can see what the museum and the institute is going to look like. So uh, easy first step. And then I'm happy to answer any questions people might have. Beautiful. Well, Kevin, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Almost three hours of chit chat. Yeah, it's, it's been a phenomenal. But uh, I mean, again, another unique perspective. I had so many different people from so many different walks of life I here, bet. you know, and then obviously the the nucleus of their their journey might be anything from mental health to, you know, physical fitness, whatever it is. But the lens that you have on leadership, you know, not only from an academic perspective, but also within the military and then, you know, all these different personal stories um, is, is just been invaluable. And rather than complain about, oh, this person's a terrible leader, it's like we need to we need to understand what we're doing wrong as an individual and what to look for as far as, you know, creating that culture in, in our in our workspace, in our city or county and even in our country. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. Well, I appreciate it. And the good news in all of this is the things that people are hungry for from, from leaders are accessible to all of us, you know, lead by example, demonstrate you sincerely care, um, you know, know your, be a student of your craft. So, I mean, if they say no thermodynamics, I'm like, crap, I'm screwed. But, you know, these things are, they're available to all of us, and I think those are they travel into our personal life too, which is so encouraging, and that's what lights me up. Mm-hmm.